Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 112, Arm in the Faith, featuring Aaron. I'm Scatty, and with me as always is my buddy Matt. Greetings everybody. Joining us today is our buddy Aaron, longtime blood rider, friend of the podcast. Speaking of podcasts, you may know Aaron from his new podcast, Star Wars Legends Lounge, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, but also... Way before that, Aaron's been an integral part of our fandom family over the years. Uh, you might know him more recently, too, as Evil Micah from the recent A Song of Madness tournament. So welcome, Aaron. How you doing? Pretty good. Thanks, guys. And uh, hi to original Micah whenever he listens to this. <laughs> hi, Micah. Yeah. Speaking of Song of Madness, we did we did cap off Song of Madness fairly recently. Uh, Brienne was our champion as... Myself, Matt, and Marcus all predicted on our last episode uh, that, that she would come out on top, and she did. Way to go, Brienne. Yeah, it was cool. Um, we've also got uh, Virtual Ice and Fire Con happening r- like right now, like as we're recording, but when you're listening, uh, it will be over. But it the good thing done, about yeah. Virtual Ice and Fire Con is they put all of it on YouTube. So um, go follow Ice and Fire Con on, on YouTube. Do you follow on YouTube? You can like follow them. their subscribe, channel, right? Subscribe, subscribe yes. get notifications. Right. Uh, yeah. What did you do for Virtual Ice and Fire Con? Just a matter of minutes ago, Scaticus. Yeah, I was uh, I was lucky. A lot of people got to do it, but I was lucky enough to, to get to do uh, Quiplash, which is uh, Quiplash is a, a game that you, you play online um, through Jackbox. If you, if you guys haven't played Jackbox games, give it a try. It's perfect for social distancing um but uh yeah uh ashaya from from history of westeros hosts it um every year i think the last several years at ice and fire con virtual or not and um it's just a fun game where uh fans and, and attendees attendees of ice and fire con get together and play this game for a while and uh it's it's all ice and fire themed uh questions that you're responding to and uh yeah i had a blast it was fun it's a good time can't wait to check it out, buddy. Yeah, so uh, go check out all the content uh, on YouTube for that. It's uh, going to be some good stuff this this weekend as it rolls out. Looking forward to it. And Matt, you you did something recently too. Yeah, I got to be on Radio Westeros's Streams of Winter series, focused on John Connington. So that was a good time. Thanks everyone for tuning in and checking that one out. Uh, had a really good time with it. It was different though. I actually wrote up a script and read off it guys yeah that was yeah that was I, different but i did similar i found myself writing more and reading more when i did when i went on their show for aria uh, a long time ago now but uh yeah i like longer paragraphs and I, you know butts through and kind of you know not not exactly read it word for word but it's pretty close yeah mm-hmm. when in rome i guess right yeah, they were like, in their notes, they're like, so we're going to write out our script right here. Sorry, I hate to pull the curtain away from Radio Westeros. But um, they're like, but you can do whatever you want, Matt. You can do bullet points or whatever. And I was like, well, if you guys are doing it, I'm doing it too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, quick quick Patreon update as well. We did just release uh, earlier this week uh, our Best of Davos Fingers Volume 2. Uh, that's for all of our patrons at the I'm a Bastard level and higher. Uh, so go check that out if you haven't. Uh, that's an opportunity for us to go take a trip down memory lane for, for Matt and I. 
get to hear good old Brooks voice for a while too. And that's fun. Uh, and then we just kind of comment on our comments. It's uh, a little <laughs> bit of an interesting format. Kind of yeah. goes into how, how we've maybe grown or changed. A lot of that. Again, we cover in this volume two episodes 11 through 18, which finishes off game of Thrones and starts a clash of Kings. So you get our, Reaction to Nedard's death, uh, our first reactions to Stannis, all sorts of fun stuff on that one. Indeed, yeah. Yep, uh, we've also got a big May coming for patrons. Um, we've got a Hangout for our Dirty Cab Driver level patrons and up. Uh, and we'll have a Films Get Fingered for our Shreddy level patrons and up. And uh, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash fingers. More information on the way for our patrons about those two items so stay tuned so we are going to be covering today at at aaron's request cersei six from a feast for crows but we're likely going to cover lots of earlier stuff about cersei and future stuff about cersei as well point is we're going to go all over the place so expect spoilers i assume you've read everything if you're here at this point anyway (laughs) and of course we love hearing from you so if uh you have anything to say to us positive, negative, ambivalent, whatever, you know where to find us. We are DavosFingers at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at DavosFingers. We're on Facebook, uh, sort of, and also Patreon.com slash DavosFingers. Yeah, hopefully their ambivalence isn't so high that they don't send anything. <laughs> yeah, if you're ambivalent, why are you sending anything? Just <laughs> to say I am ambivalent. Um, I hope we get seven of those emails. <laughs> Hey, uh, let's get into this thing, huh? Let's do it. Let's start yeah. off with our summary for the first section. Okay, Motsi, take us away, man. The new High Septon had not yet blessed King Tommen, and Circe wouldn't have it anymore. She rode through King's Landing to the Great Sept of Baylor with her new confidant, Tyanna Merriweather. Along the way, she asked Tyanna about Marjorie and if she has kept her maidenhead. Specifically... Circe asks if Marjorie and Renly ever consummated their marriage. I hope disrobe his lordship before the wedding, Tyna says. He was a well-made man and lusty. Marjorie may say that Lord Renly had too much wine, but I promise you, the bit between his legs was anything but weary the last I saw it. They talk about the admirers surrounding the little queen, jugglers, mummers, poets, members of the king's guard, and other household knights. But her favorite... Is the blue bard, Tana says. Yeah, Cersei thinks. Young and fair to look upon. Could there be something there? It's something she decides we'll need looking into, but that'll keep for another day. Today is for Tommen and securing her son's blessing. The road up Visenya's hill is paved with sparrows. Pathetic, dirty creatures that flooded King's Landing from war-ravaged fields in the Crownlands and the Riverlands. Searching for food, shelter, and salvation. Circe's litter slowed as it approached the top of the hill, the king's guard having trouble clearing the path. Make way for grace the queen, cried Sir Osmond Kettleblack. Are you all dead? Get out of the bloody way! Circe tells the knights to clear the way, but to do it gently. She won't risk starting another riot. Circe commands her guard to help her out of the litter, and she'll walk the roster to their set. All right. Bit of a, a short section there uh, to start the chapter off. Yeah. Some uh, some interesting stuff going on, though. 
Okay. Um, I just need to get something out of the way. It's significant. Did Mark Mullendore's first monkey die? Uh, he escaped. Or escaped. Yes. I escaped. hope he's happy wherever he is. Or escaped, she. I don't escaped on the Blackwater, I think. Right. Uh, during the battle is what I remember reading. Because it mentions that uh, Mega or Maga, Meg, Mega, Mega is, think, yeah. is is on the on the hunt for a new monkey for Sir Mark. And that is, it's a crucial detail. Yeah. And uh, yeah, interesting. Mark Mullendore, for those that may not remember, was one of the people that that gave uh, was part of the contest uh, for Brienne's um, well to win affections. the money to try to get Brienne's if they could get Brienne's affections. And uh, so not not the best of dudes, I guess, but I don't know. Mega likes him. Seems like maybe he's okay. I don't know. Yeah, and the the monkey didn't have anything to do with that. No, I just I just hope the monkey's okay wherever he she is. We do know that the monkey at least survived its battle in A Song of Madness. <laughs> Did. Yeah. Made it all the way to the end. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist after all those sad monkey images sent during yeah. the song of madness every day anyways while, while we're keeping it light what's up with sir lambert turnberry who hides <laughs> a good eye behind his eye patch because like why mm. so he's he's promised to wear this eye patch over a perfectly good eye until Tyrion is dead yeah. but of all the things you could do it's it's like it reminds me of that meme the like no one absolutely positively no one Blank, Lambert. I will wear this patch until yeah, Tyrion exactly. is dead. Exactly. Like, who asked, man? Who are you? There's so many other things you could do. Tim. Yeah, yeah. Of all the things you could pledge to just yeah. randomly cover up an eye, doesn't seem yeah. like it would. Well, obviously, it wouldn't help the situation. But two, <laughs> the other people that you would pledge that to would kind of just look at you like. You know, a dog when you're trying to talk to the dog and they just, you know, kind of tilt their head. What? Huh? So. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You you do you, sure. buddy. Uh, I don't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Lambert. it's one of those details George throws in that I'm just like, huh? Why do we even need that? <laughs> uh, okay. Starting off deep. Love yes. It. Very deep. Yep. Uh, I, I guess there's there's really only one kind of, uh, at least in my notes, really really deep part of this this section, which is revolving around Marjorie's maidenhead and whether or not it is there or not, or whether she's consummated the marriage. Uh, and really significant, couched in significant um, reality television. Yeah. Yeah, Taina is, is clearly gossipy. I don't know whether it's uh, for effect or whether she's just gossipy. I mean, the Merryweathers are, uh, they're from Long Table, I think. Long Table. Yes. Um, which is up, up, the way, up the way from High Garden, pretty close. So they're a reach family. Um, it's a little weird. I've always thought it was a little weird that Cersei was just very trustworthy of her, given her general feel for people in the reach. Um, so I don't know whether Taina is kind of an act, a good actor or pretty genuine. What do you guys think? I think she's a good actress that also likes to gossip. 
I think it's kind of really not that hard for. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Matt? You know, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you, Aaron. Um, but I also think that she is an actress. Uh, at first, I was wondering if maybe she was playing both sides and that she was actually a spy for Marjorie and the Tyrells. But I think the stuff that she says is so incriminating and potentially dangerous for Marjorie yeah. that I don't think she's working for Marjorie. I think, and maybe this has been brought up by others before, that she's working with Varys. Hmm. I think that she is part of uh, Varys's um, narrative of sowing chaos to pave the way for Aegon. Sowing doubt. He he says uh, to Kevin Lannister when he puts the crossbolt bolt through him that he he admits to him that he's sowing doubt, division, and mistrust to eat the very ground beneath your boy king. Um. I love that it does it does both i mean if she, if she thinks that they're not true the the allegation she's making which we skipped over them a little bit she's basically uh saying that that marjorie is she's she's leading cersei to believe that marjorie may be sleeping around right with, with lots of options a bevy lots of, of options, options including her um, own brother including her own brother which is the you know the one they kind of giggle the most about mm -hmm. ironically given cersei's <laughs> of course past. yeah Right. But um, but it would it would kind of make sense. I like I've, I haven't thought of that before, but it would make sense because she's she's sowing uh, she's sowing mistrust in Cersei and giving her a plot to create more chaos on her own, right? And she's um, even if she thinks they're fake, um, you know, getting the Tyrells kind of in trouble and uh, you know causing them to take their eye off the ball, if you will. And the one thing about Cersei, you don't really have to help her very much. In order yeah. to sow chaos, <laughs> that's yeah. true. That brain's running. Point her in a direction and give yeah. her a slight push. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence for it, but there is one key thing that I liked. Remember how they found that coin, that Tyrell coin, in yeah. the jailer Rugen's cell. Yes. And Rugen, I think it's it was a gardener coin. I think. Yeah, it was a gardener coin from the Reach. Uh, and it's pretty established that Rugen is Varys. Um, yep. And it was Taina who told Cersei about these coins. She said to Cersei, talking one time, did you know that the Queen of Thorns keeps a chest of coins in her wheeled house, old gold from the conquest? Should any tradesman be so unwise as to name a price in golden coins? She pays him with hands from Highgarden. Uh so she's the one that kind of dropped that knowledge on Cersei, kind of out of nowhere, it seems like, that Olena Tyrell walks around with these old gardener coins. And then one, of course, is found in Varys' cell. I think that's, I think that that was intentional to plant that in Cersei's mind. Feels that way, for sure. So swinging this debate a little bit away from, from Tyena and, and back toward Marjorie, um, is there anything to these allegations or is she, I mean, in, in the TV show, she seems uh, much cagier than what, right. from what I remember, at least I didn't watch all of it, obviously I said a lot. Um, and, and it, it, but it very much feels like she's playing the game in the TV show here. She's sweeter. If she's playing, she's playing much better, like much, you know, almost playing the fool a little bit. Right. Um, so is she out there having a good time or is she, 
looking like she's having a good time to kind of play this game. I think hmm. that Marjorie would know, probably from her grandmother, that once she, you know, gets there into King's Landing, first off marrying Joffrey, then marrying Tommen, that Elena would have told her that there are eyes everywhere. You know, Elena knows the, the Lannisters. She knows Tywin. She doesn't like Cersei, obviously. She knows there's spies everywhere. Like you were saying, Matt, she knows that Varys is there. And I don't know if Marjorie and Renly would have consummated their marriage. I think Renly's murder probably happened before that. You know, I don't know that, but I think so. But I think once Marjorie got to King's Landing, I think she is, or at least has been trained to only, um, if, if there is going to be some hanky-panky going on, to for it only to be her husband's. Yeah, I think I agree with you. If they didn't, if they didn't consummate on the wedding night, and I don't think they did, uh, then I don't think it would have happened. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, I kind of doubt it did. I think, I think Marjorie has been taught to play the game, like you said. Um, I think she's, I don't, I, I, it, it's almost though like she's purposefully tempting fate, like she wants to be accused, like she wants Cersei to go there, and I don't exactly know why, but she is, she is keeping these people very close, right? Not her brother necessarily; they're just siblings. But all these other people that she's keeping very close, that she's riding with, that she's flirting with, you know, she flirts even with Osney, according to him. So, you know, she's doing something. It feels like she's playing some game herself to me. Yeah, it's pretty blatant that she's not trying to just play it safe at all. She's out there doing what apparently she wants to do. And that's pretty fascinating. Um there's a kind of a mystery that flies under the radar is what Grandmaster Picel was doing visiting her. He admits to Cersei uh, under interrogation that he had given Marjorie moon tea. Yeah. But then Cersei cuts him off before he can even say what he gave her the moon tea for. And she's like, I know what moon tea is for. Yeah. Um, it could have been something for something completely different. So that's one of those underlying mysteries in all of this that we still don't have an answer to the problem with marjorie tyrell is the only look we get of her is through freaking cersei's eyes yep. <laughs> those are awfully interesting eyes to get a look at a character through so yeah and sansa's briefly um sure sure but but yeah you're right and uh i think i think marjorie is Part of what I think she's doing out there, you know, being visible, right, is it's different than the Lannisters have been doing it. They've been kind of hiding back in that keep and ruling with their, you know, gold shoved up their asses, right? And she's out there making friends. And it might be part of Elena's, Mace's strategy, right, to try to win the common people to their side if they're going to try to make a conflict with this. And... It may even be that they're trying to capture Cersei in her own net. 
the way she's trying to capture Marjorie somehow. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the reason why you only really see Marjorie through Cersei's eyes and Cersei's chapters is it's a way for Gurm to kind of show, at least in my eyes, Cersei's increasing paranoia as the story sure. goes along. And it, mm-hmm. it, you know, obviously it goes back to the Maggie the Frog prophecy. Um, but that's why I think that's really why you only get Marjorie in Cersei's chapters. Um, one thing I've always wondered is, okay, so Tommen is eight years old. We know he's going to be king someday. Uh, presumably, what is it, 16, I think? Will he become? Know? Well, you know what I'm saying. In this universe, he will become will king. Be, yes. And I believe it's 16, that you're 16, that you become king. It, yes, I think that's the official age. It seems like it's somewhat flexible depending on the dude. But I think 16 is the age of majority, yeah. My question is, what kind of queen does Cersei want for Tommen? Because <laughs> yes. every, you know... Circe views everything through her own lens. You know, this is what a queen should be. And it's her. That's what a queen should be. Circe is what a queen should be. So she knows at some point. No, but she knows at some point, years down the line, she's going to be moved aside when Tommen becomes king. So, and let's face it, in this kind of society, you're not really the king unless you can pass on to the next generation. So Tommen has to have children at some point to show himself as a legitimate king. So what does Circe want for Tommen eventually? Obviously not now, but what does she want for him eventually? Yeah, I'm not I'm not even so sure she's thought it through. She's so oh, she's so focused on the Volonkar. Cersei not really. thinking something through? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> she she she's so focused. She even says it in I don't remember if it was this chapter or one of the other ones I was reviewing for uh, for this episode. But she says something along the lines of, "I waited for twenty years or whatever the number is. He can wait a little longer, right?" And. Um, I think she's not really thinking about Tommen being king. She's thinking about how she can maximize her time to rule. I'm not saying she's trying to use Superman or anything. I just think she's not focused on it. But you're right. He's got to have a wife at some point. And um, it's almost like the you know those shotgun wielding dads that are they're like, nope, nobody's good enough for my daughter. Yeah, not they want to be a grand. They want to be a grandpa someday, but <laughs> yeah, but, but they're but nobody's good enough, and I'm not. I'm not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna deal with it right now. And yeah. you know, to her point, it's it's early. I mean, you know, the Tyrell is a, an alliance that they needed for power and troops and everything, but I don't think she sees it as immutable. I don't, I don't think she sees it as something that has to stick. Yeah, I still stand by what I've said before about Cersei, that even if she's convinced herself that what she does out of love of her children, um, her children are really tools for her to uh, increase her standing and get her to where she wants to go. Yeah, she doesn't think that. She no, thinks, she doesn't. But, she's completely convinced herself otherwise, right. but her actions yeah. say plenty for us. Right, yeah. 
Um, anything else on, on Marjorie and her uh, her future and her her present with all of these all these adventures she goes on? No, I'd be interested to talk a little bit more about her later on in the chapter. Yes. Yeah. During their conversation. Um, do you guys... Uh, do you think that the characters know about Loris and Renly? I feel like it's... I feel like it's one of those secrets that... Like, Varys for sure knows. Right? But, like, does, does Cersei know about Loris and Renly? We don't, don't get so. any real indication. Yeah. It doesn't even really come up that I can recall. Yeah, it's I... it's such common knowledge among fans, and I know the show knows it as well, that sometimes I forget that none of the people in the world know it. I have a feeling some of the Tyrells know. Yeah, I agree with that. Sure. I don't know if Marjorie sure. would. This Marjorie. Marjorie of the television show obviously does, but I don't know if this Marjorie would know that. The, yeah. the book Marjorie. Um, but I have a feeling. They're so close, though. I think yeah, she does. You're right. You're right. Uh, but but I have a feeling his older brothers probably know, and I have a feeling that yeah. Olena probably knows, and Mace. I don't know if Mace does. He, he I, actually, Mace I think, is... yeah. <laughs> He's oblivious, man. Yeah. He's unplugged. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've talked about Mace before that, like, you don't just get four really well-rounded, decently good kids out of nowhere, right? It's yeah. one of the more interesting things to me. I mean, you can still be a pretty terrible dad and have some good kids come out, uh, you know, with a good support network. But probably he's an okay dad, you know? Like, he seems like he's doing something right. Mm-hmm. I think I think we're the only people who like the Tyrell kids. On this pod, on this podcast, like, I feel like every other, every other podcast kind of runs them down and thinks they're really? snakes, snakes in the grass. I kind of feel that way. Oh, that's true. Yeah, but I don't know. I think if you're being snakes against the Lannisters, that's probably a good thing. So I'm down. <laughs> uh, Cersei is. I just love talking about her. She's such a delightful character. She really is. She drives us insane, but. She's just delightful. I had, I was like, you know what? I'm going to read a couple chapters before this one. And I'm going to read a couple chapters after just to give myself some good context. No, guys. I read every single Cersei chapter in A Feast for Crows wow. and wow. Dance with Dragons. And I read the Jamie chapters that <laughs> where he's in King's Landing with Cersei just because I couldn't stop reading her. She's <laughs> just fantastic to read. She is. Uh, <laughs> she drives shine, bonkers but shines through in, in one one very specific line in this section where she's mm. talking about having sent to Dorne for a new master at arms and I think it's Pycelle says you're gonna piss off the Tyrells and she says why do you think I'm doing it <laughs> <laughs> yep yep uh, she's she's under supreme she's so uh, she's so worried about the Valonqar prophecy and the younger, more beautiful that she's paranoid about them. Motes, you yeah. used that word earlier and I completely agree, but everyone else is just extreme underestimation. She, and maybe it's just born of tremendous self-confidence or something like that, but uh, Narciss- narcissism. She's a narcissist. 
Yes. Very true. Very true. Um, and you know what? Aunt Gemma helped that. She told her, you're a lioness back when she was younger. And it is for all the lesser beasts to fear you. Uh, Cersei later says, if this ragged Septon thinks to make me buy Tommen's blessing, he will soon learn better. And she ended up buying Tommen's blessing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She, I, I, she's she, narcissism is the right word. Delusional also. Um, you know, she's, she, there's a, a throwaway line in there where she just says in Malara until she fell into the well, she's talking about who she had as friends when she was a kid. And she says in Malara until she fell into the well. Well, like seriously pushed her into the well, right? Like she's yep. completely rewritten this history and casually just throws it away like that. Um, you know, these, these are her thoughts. She's convinced herself that that is the truth when, you know, we pretty much know it isn't. And then she justifies every decision she makes, even the bad decisions. She has a justification for them that, again, it's like that dog. You're like, really? That hmm? that's That's why you think you did that? Or that's what you're telling yourself as to why you did yeah. that? It's yeah. completely obvious to everyone else, but it makes perfect sense to her. Real quick, the uh, Ragged Jenna is sometimes listed as your favorite ship name, Matt. Right, yeah. But the Moon Boy could have been a contender. Moon Boy could have been a contender. If Moon only Cersei would have let that through. Letting <laughs> Tom and name the ships is a, just a brilliant little stroke from George. Oh, and what were the what were the names that he went with? Um, well, he names them uh, all after Tyrell. Renly, yeah, <laughs> Renly, Marjorie. What else, guys? Uh, um, Cersei had to make him name one of them after his sister, Marcella. Marcella, that's sweet, sweet Marcella, sweet Marcella. I think there was like a Golden Rose one. Golden Rose, nice. Lord Renly, Lady Olenna, Queen Marjorie, and Princess Marcella. Princess oh. Marcella had replaced Moonboy. Lady Olena, that's just great. Uh, and then she has she has that thought about um, the ship that's named Tywin, right? Yes. That she was yes. looking forward to having his name basically be emasculated. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because her ship was going to be bigger. <laughs> uh huh. Yep. Her yep. ship was going to be bigger. Yep. And then just whenever they'd refer to the ship, Lord Tywin. You know, you refer to a ship as a she. As a she, yeah. Right. And it, we've talked about this before, how interesting the relationship all the kids have with Tywin Lannister and how Cersei's driven by this obsession to make her father proud of her and also to knock him down to the lowest peg possible. Yeah. And that's super fascinating. I think all of them do that. Jamie does it. Tywin does it. There's got to be some sort of psychology behind it. Um, I actually realized this happens in my family. I have a relative uh, who, as a child, was pretty emotionally abused by her mother. Mm -hmm. um, and now they've, you know, she's grown up, and this relative is a remarkable human, very kind, giving, generous. But it's interesting. Whenever her mom comes to visit, I've heard this from other relatives, whenever her mom comes to visit her at her home and she's built a very successful life for herself. She gets this relative of mine gets very like braggy and boastful. Like she's quick to point out everything she's achieved, everything that's going so well in her life. And you know, it's like part of her wants to stick it to her mom to show her that her mom didn't win with all that emotional abuse. 
but despite all those like degrading barbs over the years, uh, she still wants to make her mom proud of her at the same time. And I'm really interested to get into the psychology behind that. And Gurm wrote it incredibly well, I think. Writes it incredibly well for all three kids. Yeah, it's um, it, it's perhaps the other, you know, other than the fact that he wages war against you know whole whole countries of people, it's probably the most damning thing about Tywin is because you can see the way he treats his kids and the the damage that it's done to them in the way that they behave now as adults. It shows just how caustic and manipulative and abusive he was and it kind of translates you can translate those things to all the rest of his actions to give you mm. he's not doing them for noble reasons yeah right he's using the same reasons that he uses over here to apply to this other part of his life it's not it's not siloed and it's pretty damning for him as a character so anyone anyone coming to me with uh, you know tywin's this brilliant guy and killing people at dinner isn't any worse than killing you know He's a bad dude. Yep. It talks about, uh, you know, he does it for his family and everything in the future of House Lannister, but yet he's 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 damaging that future. You see it, it. It's perpetuating. You see it in the way Cersei treats Tommen, how she gets on him for throwing up at, at Tywin's wake because Tywin was so rotted and gross by that point. An eight-year-old kid. Of course yeah. he's going to get sick at that point. And she goes nuts on him. Jamie yeah. has to take him aside and calm him down. Jamie has to get him out of that situation. And uh, it's it's just perpetuating and making it worse and worse and worse. And, and ja Jamie's in a tough spot with those kids because he can't yeah. act like their father, for sure. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's buried it so deep that now he just doesn't really think of them as his kids. Um, but I also wonder whether you know, his relationship with his own dad made it pretty easy for him to want to bury, bury the relationships as well. Yeah, I don't want, right. I don't want to be a dad. I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. If that's what, if you know, if that's how you treat children, then right. yeah, I'm not down with that. Yep. You guys got anything else for this section? Uh, one little thing. And sure. You know, we've talked about how, the vast majority of decisions that Cersei makes ends up backfiring on her eventually. <laughs> well, now that she has sent Jamie out uh, to quell the Riverlands, she's basically got control of the Kingsguard and she's got control of the Gold Cloaks with the Kettle Blacks. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that something that eventually is going to come back to bite her in the butt. I don't think we've gotten to it yet, obviously, but hmm. I, I, you know, I don't know. That, that she has the control will bite her in the butt? Or that yes. she mismanage it? Or... Exactly. I mean, she, yeah. if, if we know anything about Cersei in the novels, is that Cersei mismanages things, like you just said. Um, so maybe when, you know, Matt, you were talking about when uh, Aegon comes to uh, Westeros or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that, could 
uh, Varus, you know, with the Kettle Blacks there, could Varus somehow turn the Kettle Blacks, who are basically in charge of the Kingsguard and the Gold Cloaks now, that Jamie's out of town? Well, and the Kettle Blacks are, the Kettle Blacks themselves are a bit of a, an unknown. Like, we thought they were Circe's, then we learned that it looked like they were Littlefinger's. Right. But maybe, but maybe Circe's turned one or two of them. Maybe they're playing it for themselves now. A little hard to know with these guys exactly where their loyalties lie, but my guess is their loyalty lies kind of like Braun with whoever's going to take care of them best. And I, she certainly yeah. filled, just like she filled the small council with, you know, people that are just going to lick her boot. Uh, she's she's put people in charge of these various places that are untrustworthy. We know what happens with Arian Waters. He uh -huh. takes the fleet for himself and runs away with yep. <laughs> these ships mm -hmm. that, that she's bought, right? So, Oops. I mean, she she puts bad people in charge, and yeah, I could see... Yeah, I see, Aaron, what you're what you're saying. Like, so, so that, you know, I imagine that goes rotten in the gold cloaks. Like, yeah, I imagine that at some point in time, she's basically going to call for a lockdown of the city. Well, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Cersei, the call came from inside the house. You, you know, they're all the gold cloaks and the Kingsguard under the kettle blacks are going to be in there locked in with you. Will yeah. something happen? Or will they open a gate? For exactly. Aragon? Or will they? Yeah, I mean. I mean, and most of the troops that are there are Tyrell troops, I think, at this point. I'd be interested, I know you fish has always got numbers on this stuff. I don't know how many troop, how many Lannister troops are in there versus Tyrell troops, but it certainly felt like they were about to face the music with Stannis until they were rescued. So I'm betting that the Tyrell forces are much higher. They're all, some of them are off with Mace, um, you know, trying to, to uh, siege Storm's End, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, I can certainly yeah. see something like that. Um, the problem is that Cersei buys their allegiance, as you both mentioned, uh, with sex. Uh, she admits to and uh, betting all three of them, which we have pretty conclusive evidence that she that. did it with Osmond and Osney, the oldest and the youngest. Um, but then she later confesses to Osfried as well. Osfried, he was the leader of the Gold Cloaks. Osmond, of course, is on the Kingsguard. Osni was the youngest, and he's kind of just the guy that she sends on all her dirty errands. She had him assassinate the High Septon and um, try to seduce Marjorie. Um, so, and, and that's already backfired on her. Osni, once he was captured, once he was found out and taken into custody by the High Septon, the High Septon tortures him into mm -hmm. oblivion and he sings osney sings he completely turns in cersei and that's what gets cersei put in jail in the first place so backfired yep done <laughs> it's already done and then at that point uh i think it's kevin lannister it's either kevin or kyburn whoever visits cersei and i think it's kevin he says that osfried and osmond had both been thrown in jail um and then if they confess to their crimes, they would be sent to the wall. Uh, Osmond, if they plead guilty. Osmond is the dad? He's the Osmond king's, no, he's the is oldest. the king's guard. The second okay. oldest. Or, he's the king's guard one. I don't remember their ages. 
the yeah. the dad was the one that went on the boat with Littlefinger, and he was Oswell, Oswell, I think. Oswell, mm. okay. Yes, I can't keep the phrase straight, but I think Minions. I've got the kettle black straight. Uh, <laughs> but that's the problem is, uh, to speaking of backfiring, is they all have carnal knowledge of Cersei, and she bought them doing uh, underhanded bad things with the gold cloaks, with the Kingsguard, with assassinating the High Septon. She bought it all with sex, and that's where their loyalty is. And if they're not getting it, they're going to sing. And so, yeah, I think the Kettle Blacks will play an even further part than they've already played in Cersei's downfall, for sure. Yeah, I mean, she's, she, with the Walk of Shame, she kind of gets past those crimes that she committed with them, right? Like, she's right. kind of in the clear for that. But yeah. but but she now doesn't have those pawns in her corner either. They're right? in jail. So, and... so she's just running out of allies, and the ones that she's got on the Gold Cloaks might see that as well and, you know, start thinking that, this isn't exactly the best relationship for them, so it's all it's all kind of crumbling for her. And mm -hmm. she does have Robert Strong right now, but that's about it. All right, should we uh, should we get to know Aaron a little better? Just just one quick thing: we see these we see this uh, coming up throughout this chapter. Little tiny hints at things. She says, um, Cersei said, or Tana says, we all know how sparrows abhor wickedness. And Cersei says, I have heard they abhor soap and water too, your grace. <laughs> and it's just funny that a couple pages later she finds the High Sparrow scrubbing the floor with soap and water. So we're going to see a couple more of those things later on in the chapter that were fun to point out. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to know Aaron. Oh, my favorite part. Yes. Uh, this is a question we asked everybody. Oh, who are you? What do you do? What, what drives you? What makes you sing? Yeah, tell us. Hopefully it's not sex with Cersei. Yeah, if you're or chained up in the in the bowels of the sept of Baylor, yeah, sing to us, man. Uh, well, uh, I work for the West Virginia Air National Guard as a federal contractor. I am an inspector on the Air Force's C-17 aircraft. Wow. Um, basically, the aircraft every 180 days has to come in for an inspection for a week and I'm kind of the well I'm the work leader of the people that have to check it out so I'm kind of in charge of about 30 people that have to wow. inspect the planes so that's what I do um, really putting my broadcast journalism and integrated marketing <laughs> uh, bachelor and masters to good use uh, yep. I, I was and masters well yeah. done i, I was well. i was a i was a late enlistee I, I went to college right out of high school uh became a news and sports reporter uh radio side for four years but uh could never make any more than eighteen thousand dollars a year so mm. um i enlisted at age 28 and i like to call myself the least mechanical mechanic uh <laughs> you know, in the Air Force. But uh, that, that, that's why I lead the other people. I don't have to actually touch the plane. I just tell them what to do. So. Right, yeah. In a very markety way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. With that booming, warm broadcast voice. Yes, yeah. exactly. It sounds great coming out of your mouth. It does. Well, well, the marketing uh, part, I do have to foster relationships between the different shops. And I have to sell them on the idea of getting this airplane done 
when everything's breaking on it. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> I was I just going to ask, I'm not, I'm not sure you're allowed to go into details. It's maybe like privileged information, but like how often are these planes like in wrecked shape or is it usually just like change the oil and they're, they're pretty good. Uh, well, it's preventative maintenance. Um, okay. Basically the inspection is to look for things that are getting close to failing and fix it before they fail. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more than what Jiffy Lube would do, but it's kind mm -hmm. of like Jiffy Lube. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. That's good. You, uh, you are putting your, um, skills to good use though with your yeah. new podcast, the Star Wars Legend Lounge, Legends Lounge. Yeah. It's a tongue twister. Us, yeah. Tell us how you got started with that. What pushed you over the edge to be like, you know what? I've loved the Legend series for this long in Star Wars. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put the blame on you for that one. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't pick up the mantle when you asked no. us to cover them? No, no, no. Shoulders. No. Um, I believe it was, I want to say it was like last September or October. Somehow, hmm. Matt, you and Katrina and Justin got in a Twitter thread about the X-Wing series of books. and Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and one of you mentioned that you needed to talk about it. And I was like, Oh sweet. I want to do this since high school, you know, back in 94, 95. Um, so I don't know, just from there, I, I think I sent a tweet out to all of you guys like around, uh, late thanks right after Thanksgiving, maybe early December. Um, mm -hmm. like, is this going to happen or what? You know, knowing the fact that, you all have families, you have children, you have jobs, this, that, and the other. I have, you know, I, I'm not married. I don't have kids. All I got is the job. Then I come back home. I, everything else is just free time. So, uh, so I just decided one day, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm a little bored. Uh, I've got all this leave I have to take. Uh, so, you know, if I didn't want to lose the leave, I had like 21 days I had to take at the end of the year. So, mm. Um, it was just a way to kind of talk about the books that I grew up liking, um, and, uh, hopefully foster some conversation online, um, and maybe get some people interested in some of the stuff that I like. Has it been, uh, has it been rewarding to do? Like, have you gotten... Have you gotten more out of it than you expected? Um, well, I, I, I have gotten a handful of conversations started with yeah. people. Um, so that's been nice. Um, just earlier this week, uh, you know, we're recording on the 24th of April. I think it was five or six days ago. I logged into the host site and saw that, uh, the number of downloads had passed 500. So that was, that was cool. Good feeling. Passed a miles, yeah. milestone there. Yeah. Um, good feeling. Fantastic. But I, it, it has gotten me back into reading these books again. A lot of them I have read before the, the X-Wing series is the latest series that I started reading. Now I, I have read those. I think this is the fifth time. I've read wow. the X-Wing series. But one of the books I've done so far was one of the few 
Legends books that I didn't own before started doing the podcast, um, the Kenobi book. So that was the first time I'd read that one. And, uh, and that was, I, I, I had heard about it. I kind of knew how the story went. Um, Mm-hmm. But some of it I liked, some of it I didn't like. Um, but uh, I think one of the things in doing the podcast, um, it will get me into finally reading the handful of Legends books that I haven't read yet. I, I own all of the novels and the young adult novels. I don't, I don't get into the children's books or the comics that much. But... Uh, I think there's 176. I, wow. I own all those, and I, by my count, I've read all of them but 27. So it'll get I, me back uh, into re- it'll it'll force me to read those 27. Yeah, that's kind of what I was driving at. It, it it sounds like it's kind of by making the commitment to podcast about it, you're kind of making the commitment to get back into something you really enjoyed, and that's rewarding in and of itself. Outside, for sure, like, for getting the podcast itself, right? And it, it's interesting, you know, the first time I read a lot of these books, like I said, I was in high school. Going back now and reading them, and you're like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I used to really love this book. And now you have a different perspective because you're a different age and this, that, and the other. And you know what? This yeah. this part that I really liked, it, it doesn't work for me anymore. Or this other mm-hmm. part that I thought was pretty boring. Yeah, that's that's got some deep themes in there that I didn't recognize the first time that I read it. So those are those have been the best parts of it so far. Well, you're doing a great job, man. I probably don't engage you as much as I should when I'm listening, but I try to send out at least a couple tweets to you to let you know I'm listening and enjoying. But for anyone that's interested, uh, one of the things that I love about it is they're about half an hour long which is perfect for a non-podcast listener like me. Yes, the same one that records three-plus-hour podcasts of his own can only listen to about half-hour increments. Um, And Aaron does a fantastic job of breaking down the books into themes and uh, walking through very logically, uh, pointing some of that stuff out while summarizing the books and giving really cool insights into them. So it's definitely one of my favorite podcasts out there. And, uh, you know, another thing is if people have questions about legends, I'll be the first to admit as much as I love it, there is a ton in legends. That's just way too, way confusing. I mean, (laughs) some of it doesn't make any sense. There's no Mm -hmm. continuity, particularly continuity thing is a big one, (laughs) particularly with the books that were printed before the Phantom Menace. Uh, there's no continuity in those at all. Now, after the prequel movies came out, there was a little bit more continuity in those books. But uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of confusing things. Um, Just I mean, go and, with it. Yeah. Just go with it. Just roll with it. And, and, and for people who want to tune in, one of the other things about the show is Matt did all the music. He did the? Did. Uh, he did all the theme yeah. songs. That was over uh, Christmas break, right? Yep. I think is yeah. Yeah. So if 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 a man were of considerable Star Wars appetite, but but didn't know where to where to start, would would you would you have them start with your podcast with what you covered, or would you tell them to go off into the weeds and tackle this other series or something to get their feet wet? Or 
Uh, if 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 it's legends they want them to learn about, or just books in general. Uh, some of each. Just getting into Star Wars books. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will tell you. Uh, I want people to listen to the podcast all the time. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely want people to listen to the podcast. So start with Darth Bane. Yeah, there is a website um, dedicated to Star Wars books, both canon and legends, that is excellent. It's called Utini, Y-O-U-T-I-N-I. And not only do they give a summary of every single book, but they also put those books into different collections like these are the essential readings these are the ones you want to start out with these are like if you like a certain character try these uh if you like certain eras try these and uh it it really is a really good website for people who want to start out Utini. okay that's good i'd never heard of it before you brought it up i think you might have tweeted about it or something recently I'd never heard of it before that. That's perfect. I mean, you, you passed the buck on making an exact suggestion, but this is better because it allows people to make their own suggestion based on what they like using that. Find what you like and Mm -hmm. go for it. Well, Scott, for you specifically, I did have something, you know, when we spoke earlier this week, you talked about how you liked Leia. Uh, Leia is one of your favorite characters. Um, Now I think you've read all of the Canon Leia books. I've read Bloodline. Was it Bloodlines? It's Bloodline it and Princess of Alderaan. And Princess of Alderaan. I read, right. read both of those. So. So, so you've got that down pat. In Legends, uh, you know, if you really want to go wild and crazy, uh, you got the courtship of Princess Leia. Yeah. That is <laughs> one of that one. is one of the zanier books out there. <laughs> and is... if you if you're a Clone Wars fan, that's where the Night Sisters started out. Now they're oh, okay. different. They're different from the Night Sisters in canon, right. but that uh-huh. is where they started out. And you can see the uh, you can see where the canon version of Night Sisters came from, but okay. I would say if you wanted just a standalone Legends book about Leia, uh, there's a book called Tatooine Ghost. Um, Leia and Han, after they're married, go back to Tatooine, and Leia learns some of the stuff about Anakin when he was growing oh. up there at Tatooine. Uh, there's even one part of the book where there's a hollow recording from Shmi, her grandmother. Oh, wow. Which is pretty interesting. So it's a a standalone book. It's basically centered around Leia learning about Anakin Skywalker. That's cool. Yeah. I forgot that one even existed. I'm almost positive I read it, but I'd completely forgotten about it. I, I won't say it's the greatest book in the world. But if you are a Leia fan, it's yeah. it's one of those books that will, you know, give you some in, some insight into Leia's way of thinking. Um, and, and of course, in the canon side, you read Bloodline. You know, she really struggles with being Darth Vader's daughter. In Bloodline. She does, and with the secret of that. Yeah, exactly. Who who knows it? All right, turning the turning the page a little bit to sports. Big sports fan. You mentioned you were in sports journalism doing radio uh, for a while. Um, we've talked plenty of hockey here, but you're a, you're a soccer guy. Basketball <laughs> guy, too, you said. Um, I am. We are now things. turning this podcast into a UEFA Champions League podcast. Let's go, Scott, right <laughs> now. 
right now. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Super I'll be back broadcast. in. I'll be back in ten. <laughs> give me, give me your best take on the Super League, real quick. Like on what's happened this past week. Uh, it was a complete public relations and organizational disaster that the gong be, show that will be back in about four to five years. They're going to try it again. Absolutely. All, all about the money. Yeah. Uh, most of and the clubs, control, it's about control and the fact that most of the clubs involved, uh, are in serious debt. Like serious debt. Barcelona, I believe their debt is above one point one billion dollars. How is that God. possible with all the money that they've got going on? Exactly. Well, uh, I, I, um, you know, throwing the uh, curtain back here. The majority of stuff that I listen to is sports related, uh, and I listen to one show that is a sports business show. Um, I believe the last time they looked at Barcelona's books, you know, the, the, a lot of the clubs over there are community owned, so they have to show their books. Um, I believe Barcelona's was like nearly $1.3 billion in debt. They had, they were paying player salaries 150% of what their revenues were. So, <sighs> You know, the, the more they're buying, they just continually are buying players, taking out loans from banks to buy new players to bring them in and then not paying the debt off. Kind of like what Searcy's doing with the Iron Bank. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so I was going to ask you, what's an accomplishment, Aaron, that you're proud of? <sighs> These questions that you sent out, this was the hardest one for me to come up with anything. Oh, uh, it was. Um, just because of your humble nature. <laughs> I think it's a hard question. Mainly because my question. Uh, mainly because my mind doesn't, you know, think that way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I honestly, I am a knight of the golden horseshoe. What is that? I'm actually, I, I am I actually a knight. I'm actually tell me, a knight. Tell, tell us more. <laughs> um. So it's, it's specifically a West Virginia thing. Um, okay. When I, I assume it's still around uh, because when I was knighted, it had been around for like 40 or 50 years. Hmm. Um, in your eighth grade year, uh, you take this civics course specifically about West Virginia, and then you take a test at the end of it. And if you are one of the higher scoring people on that test, uh, then you are selected to go down to the state house in Charleston. And the governor comes out with a little sword and does the whole oh, knighting wow. ceremony. And you get no a little way. pin. You get a little pin that's a horseshoe. And uh, so I've still got the pin. Um, nice. when, when I was knighted, uh, the governor was unavailable, so oh, no. the the the, the uh, congressional like representative from my okay. district is the one who went ahead and knighted us. Uh, <laughs> but but I am a knight of the Golden Horseshoe, and uh, my one brother Shane is also a knight. Not my little brother Brian; he didn't uh, 
he's not but uh my Ooh, brian yeah my brother shane and i, I are both know. uh knights of the golden horseshoe i don't know it seems like a, a dubious knighting i'd be like dunk i'm not sure sure arlen really did the knighting right well possibly. No. possibly it completely counts it completely counts <laughs> You're Sarah Aaron now. Well, I, there there so is yes, photographic evidence. On, there Aaron. is photographic evidence of me getting knighted. Now you could say, since it wasn't the governor, maybe it's not legitimate. But... <laughs> I'm just doing that time. Uh, yeah. Sir Aaron, you shall be to me forevermore. Yeah, that's really cool, man. That's the first time we've asked that question, so thanks for humoring. Yeah, that's fine. As we're moving out of the pandemic, I took out my uh, timely pandemic questions and Ooh. threw that one in. Um, open that statement. You know, one thing about that. Uh, like I said, I, you know, I don't have kids. I, I I don't usually go out to restaurants or movies anyway. So honestly, my routine hasn't really changed in the pandemic. <laughs> it, honestly, my routine hasn't yeah. changed at all. You kept going into work. You kept servicing the planes. Yep. Yeah, you came home. You did the same things yeah. you always do. Yeah. I just, I go to work. I go home. The The only thing that changed was ordering my groceries online to pick it up instead of actually going into the grocery store. That's the only thing that changed. Yeah. Listen, there, there are a lot of people that <laughs> I've, I won't out them here, but um, you know, that I've read threads and things on Twitter that they're like, look, I'm, I'm perfectly happy living right. this way. I, this I'm is, one of them. This completely. is better for me. And I, mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting because it takes away some social pressures. It takes away some, required commitments and things like that from people that it makes them uncomfortable yeah. um it's it's certainly been interesting i mean it it's it's put a lot of mental health stress on some people and from other people they're i think some of them are almost ashamed to admit it right because the they see other people struggling and they're like i'm good yeah you know that's me 100 percent. yep uh so why, Aaron, did you choose Sir Aaron? My apologies, Sir. <laughs> it's over now. <laughs> well, did, why? You made this bed. Now you got to sleep in it, Mozi. <laughs> why did you choose this chapter? What What is it that you love about this chapter? Um, I, I just find the Cersei chapter so fun to read. You know, um, and this chapter is kind of like the Twitter thread pictures that precede a terrible event you know <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> where the writing's just all over the wall and exactly she is convinced that she can meld everyone to her will and one of my favorite things about Cersei is that she can never um, figure out when she is the one being manipulated, you know? Yeah. She, she's convinced that she is the major manipulator, that right. she is playing everyone else. Now, she knows there's other people who are good. She knows Varys is good. She knows that Littlefinger's good. But they're not her. She's the best. And when you yeah. talk about underestimating people, she underestimates Tyena. Merryweather. She clearly underestimates, you know, the person we're going to meet here soon, the new High Septon. Um, 
and and the religious order in general exactly all, like all as a group yeah exactly and i i just find her chapters fun i just do i find her chapters fun a lot of times i'm not i will admit i am not a fan of reading things in first person and while i know a song of ice and fire is not in first person a lot of the pov chapters you get so much of inside people's heads it's Feels almost like, like yeah. it's first person for sure. Circe's i do enjoy I, I enjoy just because of the arrogance, I think. It's it just, there's something about the her arrogant thoughts yeah. that are fun to read. The way you've put that, it makes me remember a meme. The Honey Badger. Do you remember the Honey Badger? Honey Badger don't give a shit. You remember? You guys remember nobody? Yep. Seriously, yep. the Honey Badger. She, she, she doesn't care. Like, she's going to come out on top. She's going to bully her way through everything. She's going to be the one that that takes over right exactly I'm gonna, she's convinced I'm gonna herself my, of that, neg- yes. my negligible photoshop skills to put a blonde wig on a honey badger <laughs> this, is, this is gonna happen all right and, so and, and, and that'll be in. that'll be what goes up on twitter when you release this episode it'll be the, right. the honey badger with a blonde wig that would be great yeah we can get to work on that i've got to get you uh <laughs> in night in knight armor fighting the honey badger. That's so I about. am Sir Mark Mullendore, and here's my monkey. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> Should we move okay. into the second summary, second section here? Yep. Yeah, let's, let's do it. So continuing our story, as Cersei crosses the square, she sees a horrible sight, the remains of hundreds of people piled around Baylor's statue. Bones and skulls and leathery bits of flesh, crows and flies feasting on the carrion. When Cersei asks the meaning of the filth, one of the sparrows, a one-legged man, tells her, These are the bones of holy men murdered for their faith. Septon, septas, brown brothers, even silent sisters killed when their septs throughout Westeros were destroyed. It was Stannis and his red witch and the wolves, shouts Cersei. Tommen shares your outrage. Your dead will be avenged. But it's not revenge the sparrows want, but protection. Protection for all the septs and holy places in the Seven Kingdoms, as Matt mentioned. A king who does not protect his people is no king at all, says a man with a seven-pointed star painted on his forehead. The warrior will defend us, not this fat boy king. (laughs) Appalled, Circe and her guards wade through the filthy sparrows and up the steps to Baylor's sept but they're stopped by a group of armed men with the seven-pointed star sewn on their coats. They may enter the sept, but the King's Guard must leave their weapons outside. Knights of the King's Guard do not set aside their swords, not even in the presence of the King, she says. Well, in the King's house, the King's word must rule, answers one of the guards, but this is the house of the gods. So Cersei orders the King's Guard to wait for her, and enters the Great Sept alone. And what she sees shocks her as much as the paupers and vagrants outside. Scores of septons dressed in homespun robes, scrubbing the floor on their hands and knees. She recognizes one of them, Septon Raynard. When she asks him what he's doing, a small bearded man answers, he's cleaning the floor. Work is a form of prayer, pleasing to the smith. The man's robes were rough, but clean and wet from cleaning the floor. Cersei notices his bare feet, dirty, 
callous things, disgusting to look at. Hmm. Are you his high holiness? She asks. We are, he answers. Is this how you greet me? With a scrub brush, dripping water? By rights, you should have met me on the steps in your finest robes with the crystal crown upon your head. But the high septon tells her there are no robes and no crown. They've been sold off to feed the poor. He's utterly mad, she thinks. The most devout must have been mad to elevate him, or terrified of the sparrows at their door. Cersei tells the High Septon she wants the sparrows gone from the city, but he tells her they have no place to go. They've lost their homes, their farms, their lands, just ruined. War is a dreadful thing, she says. These atrocities are the work of the Northmen and of Stannis and his demon worshippers. Some of my sparrows tell of bands of lions who despoiled them, and of the hound, who is your own sworn man. He asks where the king's knights were to protect them, saying King Jaehaerys swore to defend the faith. Yes, but Jaehaerys was blessed by the High Septon, Cersei reminds him, something he has not yet done for Tommen. The realm is full of kings, the High Septon tells her. For the faith to exalt one, we must be certain. When Aegon the Conqueror landed in Westeros, the High Septon locked himself in the Starry Septon Old Town for seven days, fasting on bread and water. When he emerged, he blessed Aegon, anointing him with oil. I must do as he did, says the High Septon. I must pray and fast. For seven days and seven nights, Cersei asks. For as long as needs be, he says. Cersei relished the thought of assisting his fast, of locking him in a tower and seeing that no one brings him food until the gods have spoken. She reminds him that the other kings worshipped false gods, and only Tommen defends the faith of the Seven. She assures the High Septon that if he anoints Tommen as the one true king, he will put an end to the atrocities at Sept's across the realm. But how will he do that, your grace? he asks. Will he send knights to walk with every begging brother? Will he supply men to guard the scepters against the wolves and lions? Cersei couldn't commit to that. Tom needed every troop for the war. So, she suggests the High Septon use his own men to guard the scepters. King Magor's laws prohibit that. It was by his decree that the faith laid down its swords, he reminds her. Tommen is king now, Cersei says. Magor's laws can be undone. Here's another quick call back, or call forward, actually. If I had known I was going to have to walk, Cersei says, I would have dressed for it. <sighs> Get it? Walk of Atonement yep. later, where she's naked? Got it? Yeah, everybody? Yep. Okay, good. All right. Just make it true. It's definitely a call forward. Uh <laughs> I wonder if George thought that when he wrote that line or if it was just purely just Cersei being like, oh, I wore the wrong shoes for this. No, I, I bet he's thinking of, of it when he wrote it. I bet he's, you know, yeah, I, I bet he probably already had that privilege. chapter done. I bet yeah. he probably already had yeah. the Walk of Atonement chapter done. And when he went back through his editing process, he probably added that in. He's just like, hey. <laughs> I love that he does stuff like that. Hmm. Um, what else you got? Again, just another example of Cersei not recognizing when she's being played. Yeah. Big time. It almost reminds me of 
can't remember which of the Marvel movies it's in, it is, but when Black Widow is at the very beginning, when she is handcuffed to the chair, and mm. you know, mm-hmm. it's the first Avengers and, movie, and they get the phone call. That one, yeah, and and she's like, "Man, why'd you call me now? I almost had him ready to spill everything that, you know." <laughs> yeah, she That's in true. that in that same movie later, she plays Loki, right? And Loki thinks he's playing her. Yeah, exactly. She gets him to divulge that the Hulk, Hulk being on the on the ship is the weapon, right? And that he's tried to right. accomplish. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Ser- um, the High Septon's already reestablished the, the Sword and Star. He's basically, I mean, they're not wearing rainbow cloaks yet. Yeah. But they say that the guards outside the doors of the Great Sept are already wearing that badge, the seven-pointed star, red on white, that the that the uh, poor fellows used to wear. He's already doing it. He's put it into place. Yep. Yeah, they have, only... they have axes, they have clubs, they have cudgels, and mm-hmm. they're standing up to the Kingsguard. Yeah. It's I, there! The, spa- the sparrows, for sure, are, are representative of that. You know, it, it's probably like a... Um, unofficial capacity right because it is illegal like he's probably not officially drafting sure. sparrows to do it but they're already doing it the force yeah. is there what the the more official group the the knights the star stars yeah yeah the, the, stars. the swords the swords swords swords, swords. swords and the, the, swords the and poor fellows are the stars because they yeah. wear the patch right the swords are the, the warrior sons special right? yeah pommels on their swords yeah right the warrior sons so they're the more official ones and they're maybe i don't know they're more valuable. They're certainly more of the of the stars, but the swords are. They have to like draft knights into this service, right? To give up their lands right. and things to do that. So that that official part is is certainly not being done. But yeah, I mean the the the, the people are fed up. They're um, they're rioting in their own way. You know, I mean, like they don't have a whole lot of power. These citizens, but they're trying to exercise it where they can, and this is. You know, this is their version of striking. And when you talk about that organization, it's in the next chapter in the book, in the Jamie chapter, when he goes to see his cousin Lancel. And when he goes to the Sept, there's three of the poor fellows outside of that Sept with their little stars on, holding their weapons, trying to keep Jamie out from seeing his cousin. Yeah. Yep. It's already happening. And you make a good point about the Warrior's sons, but I wonder if maybe there's some backdoorsy conversations already of recruiting efforts that are going on uh even if they can't act in an official capacity yet yeah i mean they they get recruits very quickly right i mean Mm -hmm. it's it's not a surprise i guess maybe that they're that they're being approached um it does surprise me a little bit the knights would give up you know their lives to go to go do this I, i guess it's always kind of the way i view people's relationship in these books with this religion of the seven because it always does feel kind of very casual for most of them um so it it seems weird that there would be knights in droves doing that but i wonder how many hedge knights do it or how many you know i mean like the the non-privileged ones yeah i was i had a similar note of what kind of knights are attracted to this this way of life uh, very similar to like a Knights Templar type. I mean, Sir Aaron has the down low on, on the, or has the, the inside scoop on the Knights. 
right. he does belonging to an organization himself <laughs> very prestigious um, one. very prestigious of, of what kind of men are attracted to these are they hedge knights that don't have a lot of better options and this is food in their bellies and um, a pretty good gig uh, or, or is it similar to someone like Lancel Lannister who maybe doesn't have a ton of prospects going forward and um, a knight that's so maybe like a different. seventh or eighth son you yeah know? a Waymar Royce type guy it's like well you can go to the wall or you can join the faith militant right yeah yeah the Septon you're right this is kind of already all kind of feels like it's in play and yet he does seem maybe it just is seen he's, he's acting perhaps but mm-hmm. he does seem surprised by the offer um so maybe he thought it was just gonna have to continue to be unofficial for a while right but, he's like oh you're really handing this to me on this nice silver platter exactly yeah uh, okay yeah let's oh yeah that sounds great that would be awesome Cersei. what a great idea yeah you are just full of good ideas well scott like you were saying the the swords are kind of when they're when they're there that that's official you know that is the yeah. official faith militant maybe he just never figured that part of the organization was going mm. to be formed again and it was just going to be his own army of the poor fellows and yeah. he just took he took advantage of Cersei not and, being the smartest uh, person out there and and not even his force right i mean it, it's it's subtle but like the language that he uses when he talks about the poor fellows Cersei's like i don't know if this is a direct quote but like you need to send them away get them out of here and he doesn't say where should I send them. He says where should they go. Like he's not he's 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 not indicating that he's actually in charge of them. It's more like you're not taking care of people, so they're doing what they're doing. I don't have any part in this, right? Like they're, I'll I'll speak for them. I'll but... speak for them because they're part of my faith, but they're doing this. I'm the I'm innocent, right? Because he hasn't done anything officially, but he but he he's he's a pretty good negotiator i mean he throws ned in her face to you know the the uh she she's she's complaining about all the bones uh desecrating the the square um and and he's like nah it was that dude's that innocent guy's (laughs) blood flowing throughout the square that really you know that really soiled it and uh you know that that kind of puts cersei off i think and he throws the hound in her face and then she's like well you know Yes, it was all the Northmen, and it was Stannis's people. Well, we have we have reports of lions out there doing this. Well, you know, we can't ex- be expected control to be everybody. control everyone that we, <laughs> yes, you know, that's and, loyal and to House Lannister. And by setting all of that ground, he then he then gives her a fight that he knows she can't win. Yeah. All right then. Right back on her heels. All right then, give me the men. Give me the men to protect these people. You got to take care of them. That's your job. It's part of the contract we have. He's like, well, I can't. Like he's mm-hmm. he's pushing her toward that ledge, no, very knowingly. Yeah, what do you think um, the High Septon's intentions are? Is he grasping for more power? Does he? I don't know. Is he? There's always conspiracy theories in the fandom. That's fine. That's great. The High Septon's Howland Reed. There's all this stuff out there, right? What do you guys think of the High Septon? I don't know about conspiracy theories, but I do think he acting for the Church of the Seven thinks 
that this is an opportune time, you know, the aftermath of all of the fighting in the Riverlands and the Crownlands specifically, mm-hmm. for the church to gain back some of the power that they had lost during, you know, the 300 years of the Targaryen's reign. Hmm. Okay. And they see that there is a boy king <laughs> and a queen regent that can both be manipulated manipulated and i i think it's i I, you know i don't know who he may be i i just if he is just on the surface of it just a member of this church who was you know elected as high septon Mm -hmm. i I think it's just a way for the church to gain back some power in the seven kingdoms right yeah Yeah. i agree that's to some degree i think um He's an interesting guy. Like, obviously, we don't get his POV. We don't know what's in his head, but he plays up this high and mighty, you know, morally upright guy that's kind of trying to rectify some some things. They've had some bad, some bad leaders as their high septons lately, right? And he comes in and kind of he's a man of the people, right? He's 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 lowborn. He's not, you know, he's not one of the favorites, and he's literally cleaning the place. Like he's literally cleaning the the sept. It's it's a metaphor also for him cleaning up the order, for him cleaning up the faith. And I think he believes very much in that. But then on the back end, he's friggin' torturing people. So like he's not <laughs> he's not exactly a good dude either. So yeah, I kind of agree with Aaron. I think it's not a power grab necessarily, but it's like, hey, let, let come on, let, like let's get the faith back on its feet here. It's not in a good place. And if I got to break a few skulls to do it and, you know, these Lannisters are morally corrupt, sure, I'll help get rid of them too. I think he's very much willing to overstep some things that would normally be bounds in order to kind of get the faith back on its feet. I think he thinks it's floundering. And Mm. that's my take. I like both of those. I mean, yeah, I think I agree with both of you. Um, it's not outside the realm of possibility that his intentions are, are just are good. They're there. He, you know, he's seen, it talks about how he spent, what was it like 40 years or something wandering the, yeah. He's like a Maribald going on his, yeah. Going on his circuit through all the half a hundred towns or whatever he says and villages. So he's seen firsthand the plight of the voiceless, right? The horrors inflicted upon the small people. And he's maybe seizing upon this opportunity to affect change from the top down. I'm interested to know whether this opportunity was really thrust upon him. Like the people kind of pushed him to the top or whether it was something that he kind of quietly campaigned for. Like, Hey, if I was in charge, I would do this, you know? And we don't really know, but that would be interesting to find out if he was kind of unwillingly, pushed into this position and like reluctantly accepted it or if it was something he truly wanted from the beginning. Um, But, you know, as we don't get much in the preceding chapters about it, no, they're they're about to elect these two other dudes and one of them disappears like suspiciously. And then all of a sudden we have this guy. Yeah. And it makes it kind of sound like the sparrows carried him in upon their shoulders and, you know, and he's just like, Hey, I'm the guy. So, 
they're looking for a hero. I guess that makes me a hero. Um, you know, character analysis 101 is what is the character's motivations, what drives them. For him, it's it could be just what he's witnessed over the past year with the people that he serves. And mm-hmm. I don't even know if he's as much in it for the faith, for the church, as the he's people. in it for the people. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. It's interesting we get, you know, you mentioned his circuit or whatever. Um, we get 50, 60, 60 as pages earlier we get Septon Maribald and, and the broken man speech and this man who we trust, right? Kind of the way he's laid himself out, you know, Brienne seems to trust him. He seems like a good, a good, you know, he wasn't always a good man and he's a broken man himself. Um, but he's become a, a relatively good man. And so we kind of relate to him. And now we have the high Septon who is basically a Maribald clone. He did, he had the same job. Right. I don't know if he had the same background, but he had the same job. And so I think we're as readers, we're meant George has laid the groundwork for us to kind of trust him a little bit, to right. see him as a grounded, a grounded force. So it wouldn't shock me if he upends that. Um and you know, again, he is torturing people. It's hard for me to imagine Maribel doing that. <laughs> but but you're right, his motivation may just be enough is enough. Like the people need better. Yeah. The people need better. Yeah, I was reminded of the uh, of the passage in the Bible, Scott. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. <laughs> Listen, I might be. I had my time. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty well known passage. The the part where at the Last Supper where Jesus washes the feet of the twelve apostles, right? And um, you know the whole the it's a it's a whole teaching lesson on servant leadership and everything. He says, "If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example; you should do as I have done to you. The servant is no greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Um, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them." And I just thought of that as the description of the high septon's feet. You said it in your summary, right? The what do they call them? Like horned feet or like calloused. black and just calloused. Yeah. Just. Yeah. And this is a guy who's lived a life washing feet mm-hmm. and never asking, demanding, suggesting that the same be done to him. He hasn't even taken the time to do it himself, obviously. The guy needs a pedicure like crazy. And this, of course, stands in stark contrast to the lives and decadent, uh, you know, decadence and opulence that previous high septons have been living uh, and those in the upper echelons of the faith. So I love the idea that you both said of him taking that opportunity to really upend things, completely flip it around. Uh, but I am nervous about some of that righteous indignation that he's feeling. Of, I'm going to, I don't mind, you know, cutting off Osney Kettleblack's nipples or whatever he says he does. Uh, things are getting a little crazy there. So. I, I, yeah. So religious groups, but, but groups in general uh, that have kind of a common purpose with a, with a kind of a central leader, they're dangerous. Like, like the High Septon can have that righteous indignation and he can talk to people and negotiate and have these conversations with that righteous indignation. But when other people feed off of that and don't have the same boundaries, the same bounds, the same compass that he has, the righteous indignation takes over, right? Sure. And boundaries are crossed and things change. Cersei is thinking about 
she, she totally thinks that when she arms these people, she says it multiple times in this chapter, they're going to fight Stannis and they're going to fight the Northmen, right? That's what she thinks. They're the people that are the problem. These people, the, these sparrows will go out and fight her war for her, basically. Yeah, I just got right? another army. Yep. Right. And but but she's not she's not thinking past first base. Okay, best case scenario, they do that. Now what? They're they're armed, they've got victory in their teeth, they they know what it tastes like, and they're still unhappy with you. So, like, what do you think happens next? You got a game plan for the whole the whole shebang, and she's not at all. They clearly don't have uh, a good. Well, they clearly don't think much of the houses, you know, the highborn people. As mm. you said, Matt, if he is out there for the people that he's ministered to, walking from town to town, the poor fellows that Cersei is now armed um, and is as we have speculated, is now working for under uh, the orders of the church. They don't have a, you know, that, like I said, they don't think too much of the houses. Um, so best case scenario, they go to fight Stannis, they go to fight the Northmen. Well, there are houses in the South after, you know, after they get done with them. Okay. And like you said, now you, you didn't help us during the previous war. Our homes still aren't there. Our lands right. are still ravaged. You know, I still can't put food on the table for my family. That's why we walked here to King's Landing. Yeah. Yeah, at, at some point, um, an army needs an enemy to fight. Uh, it's, it's a common kind of, kind of phrase and uh, used a lot in our political climate now with policing and our military complex and things and we have you on the, on the call now Aaron uh, you know representing part of that but I think it's dangerous to empower this brand new group without a lot of rules they're gonna look they're gonna look for somebody to fight they're gonna look for somebody that's doing something they disagree with because they have what they think is the moral high ground they're gonna keep looking for the next person to fight and at some point, it's going to come back to her door, right? Yeah, rage against the machine, man. Rage against the machine. Um, <laughs> there's a funny little part. No swords allowed in the high sept in in the sept, right? Yeah. Won't let the king's guard in. Yeah, I mean that's bold. That's really bold what they're doing. Like you don't need much more evidence that they feel empowered already right and he's they're blatantly trolling uh cersei too later in the passage a dozen scruffy hedge knights were kneeling before the warrior beseeching mm -hmm. him to bless the swords they had piled at his feet <laughs> they did bring swords in that's yep. funny <laughs> it's oh. just having a go at cersei just doing it because they can. They're doing it because they can. Um, the High Septon sees Cersei as a bully, and he's going to strike back, even with little digs like that. He's going to make her come into the negotiating process with as little power as he can. 
um, not affording her any type of luxury so that he can put her right back on her heels, which you both made good points in saying that he does pretty masterfully. Indeed. <laughs> Love it. Love it. You guys have more for this section? Um, they always talk about Magor's fighting with the faith militant, and it was Magor's laws that put down the faith militant. Mm-hmm. But Magor died before the faith militant uh, was, you know, completely disbanded. Wasn't it Jaharis, the next one, who made an agreement for amnesty uh, for yeah. some members of the faith militant? Um, but they, yes. it, 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 when, when people in the universe, when people in the books always talk about this, they, they always talk about Magor and the faith militant. I, it's just something that I always find a little interesting. Just something I find I'm, interesting. I meant to go back and, and relook at some of these sections to get a sense for the timing. What I remember, cause I didn't, I didn't do that. What I remember offhand is that <clears throat> they disagreed with Magor taking uh, new wives because his high tower wife, whose name I've forgotten now, wasn't working out. Uh, Celise High Tower, maybe. Um, Cerise. Cerise. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to take a new wife, and they didn't like that. And they, he went to war over that and made laws basically that countermanded what they wanted. He fought a bunch of a bunch of them, killed a bunch of them, um, you know. And there were a bunch of offshoot military, you know people kind of fighting him but he fought them a lot it didn't end until jay harris came through and kind of appeased them a little bit and they kind of said okay fine you know no more faith militant but it was magor that made the laws first and then jay harris that kind of came through and and uh finalized it i think that's what i have from memory yeah i went back and took a quick peek at it and why didn't you interrupt me with facts After our best of episodes, like I'm super reluctant to interrupt you because <laughs> of how often I used to do it. I know, but, but I'm spitballing and you have the answers. <laughs> Next time I should just like kind of raise my hand or something. Um, it, it started clear back with Annie's and him and his wife. He wanted to marry his kids together and they didn't like right. that. And Magor was the one who, similar to what Cersei does with Tyrion, he offers bounties uh, if you kill a poor fellow oh, yeah. or a warrior's son and bring their heads to him, you you get some money for it. Um, and yeah, it was uh, Jaharis that came in and said, listen, we'll protect people from now on. I know you're just looking out for protecting pilgrims and all those. So we'll take care of it. We, the crown, will do that. So he set that expectation with the faith that they would protect them. And that's what the High Septon is now throwing back into Cersei's face is, listen, our guy, you know, 200-something years ago said you would do this, and you're not. So what else am I supposed to do now? Magor raised a set of laws which forbade holy men from carrying arms and punished lords who spoke out against the suppression of the faith. Those are the specific laws I think they're referring to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And then here's what you said, Matt. Adding to his earlier laws, he now placed bounties on the heads of those faithful who remained defiant. A golden, dra- a golden dragon for the scalp of a warrior's son, a silver stag for that of a poor fellow. 
Good money. Yeah, not bad. You know, if the Uber or Lyft situation isn't working out for you, <laughs> just go hunting some <laughs> swords and stars. Yeah, the biggest problem might be where can you redeem your heads? <laughs> like, do you got to take them all the way to King's Landing? All that's a the trip. way to... That's a trip for a couple of little dragons. <laughs> you guys mentioned how the High Sparrow has clearly already started a lot of this in motion. You know, mm-hmm. um, the guards blocking the King's Guard at the gate. Uh, the, the people that already have the star on their uh, rough spun clothes. And there's some in Derry guarding the sept that Lancel's in. Mm-hmm. When do you think it started? When do you think all this stuff started and just nobody in the POVs that we had before this noticed it happening? Well, Brienne does kind of start to see it happen when she's making her way up to Duskendale. She runs into groups of, of the faith that have kind of banded together. They, she even mentions a, on a couple occasions that she sees weapons and things. It, um, it's it's never explicitly stated, but it's pretty implied that she runs into the High Septon coming to King's Landing. Right. Like, yeah. He runs into his group. Yeah. But I don't remember yeah. I don't remember anywhere else where it says that they have the actual sort of like badge right. painted oh, yeah. on. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a rolling snowball, right? Uh, that that's getting bigger and bigger and less manageable. Um you know, who the first star bellied Sneech was that put the star on his on his on his belly, I don't know. But yeah, I, f- I feel like at some point, um, you know, you get you get empowered by your victories, right? So they come in, they put their guy on the throne. They're like, "Yeah, I'm not stopping there. Remember that star they used to wear? Yeah, let's put one of those on there, right?" Like they just kind of keep they keep building their momentum as long as they they got rid of the Septon Olador or whatever it was that was maybe gonna get maybe gonna get the post, and then they get their own guy in there. And they think things don't things are going good, and they don't want to stop. And you know, it's how. It's, yeah. I mean, there's there's no proof to it. I, I kind of think this organization started really close to after Tywin's death. Hmm. Why? Well, you we you talked about how Tywin's not a great person, and probably not the brilliant military commander that some people think he is, but it is clear that at least in story, most of the people around the kingdom are, if not afraid of him, wary of Tywin. And they believe Tywin is someone of significance who has some experience in the past of putting down uh, people that confront him Mm. or groups that confront him. So I'm not, I'm not sure that, well, I guess the organization could have started when Tywin was still alive, but when you talk about the snowball going down the hill, I don't think it starts to ramp up until after Tywin is out of the picture. And they see an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, we can do sense. this now. Yeah. It makes sense. I, I think, you know, coupling that with what Tywin has done in the Riverlands, you know, the people in King's Landing, even the High Septon himself in this chapter is, you know, kind of here or there about who's really doing it, but he's strongly alluding that really it's a lot of lions doing this. And there are wolves out there too, but I think the people know it's Tywin's troops doing this. They're the they're the ones wrecking all these villages. And so 
with no protection, I imagine people started protecting themselves. And as they started banding together to do it, not unlike the Brotherhood Without Banners. Well, Brotherhood Without Banners can't be everywhere. So some people started doing it themselves, right? And yeah, just kind of picked up steam. But it makes sense, you know, that it would have really taken hold after Tywin's death, because you're right, he wouldn't tolerate that. Right. He'd run him. He'd run him over. <sighs> she, Cersei, even says that in this chapter. She would have come through with. He would have come through with troops and cleared these people out. And it all started with Lannister troops, right? Gregor Clegane raiding in the Riverlands yes. under Tywin's orders, clear back into Game of Thrones. Yep. I like I like the question though, Aaron, because it it definitely helps us see these poor fellows in these sparrows in the riverlands in a different light we've often seen the small folk in those situations just purely as victims and here we see we get this idea of them slowly but surely starting to empower themselves a little bit more and starting to make plans for you know we're not going to lay down and take this forever we are going to do something and uh, that's kind of cool to see. Rebellions are built on hope, right? And they found some some hope there with their high sparrow. Cool. Do, you, do you think they had any communication with Old Town? Because of where, you know, the, the faith kind of started? I, I, I take this as more of a grassroots organization yeah. that started around the Riverlands and the Crownlands. Yeah. Uh, so they have to crown a new High Septon with a vote, right? And Cersei says it was in this chapter, or maybe the one before it, where they have to, um, they, they usually select, the most devout usually select one of their own. So it, it kind of reads that, uh, the most devout saw the writing on the wall that if they don't go along with this, they're going to, they're going to go missing. <laughs> right. And so they gave in to this grassroots organization like you're talking about. Um, you know, they, they gave in and said, okay, okay, fine. You get your dude, your, your dude's in charge. Yeah. And looking at it that way, that's, a, there's actually a great communication method in place. If If you picture the, you know, the different villages is kind of like these cells, right, of different groups of people. You've got traveling septons all over the Riverlands, just like this High Sparrow, just like Maribald. What a great communication network yeah. that these septons are already traveling from village to village. They can start passing along plans and ideas and getting people hyped. And um, it actually is a pretty good system, probably. Isn't that the same type of organization people accuse the Maesters of, particularly when uh, the Targaryens were around? Of, you know, they're yep. they're at yep. each one of these castles. If, if you believe all over yeah, the kingdom, if yeah. you if you believe that the Maesters helped bring down the dragons and eventually the Targaryens, <clears throat> excuse mm -hmm. me, that uh, I mean that's the same type of organization. It is. Yep. Yeah, they're just sending, uh, you know. Sending birds instead of sparrows uh, to, do hey the, to do the ravens. Yeah. Hey, look at that. Scad making the connections. I love it. Um, Great is that any more in this section? Not really. Move along. No, I think that's the end of my notes. Well, we're going to get to know Aaron a little bit more now, a little bit more on his just 
It's a song of ice and fire opinions. Mm-hmm. So what? And the number of listeners have turned have, are about to turn off. No, shut up. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit earlier this week during our test call. For the <clears throat> I always do a quick little test call to test the audio with, with people that are coming on. Um, and it always gives us a chance to just catch up a little bit beforehand. And you mentioned uh, that you were with us from very early uh, in our episodes, but surely your Song of Ice and Fire start, story itself starts before that. How did, how did you find it? Uh, I got to give credit to my brother, Shane. Um, I... Sir Shane. Yeah, Sir Shane. Uh, Sir, Sir Christopher Shane. Uh, oh. Shane's, oh, okay. Shane's his middle name. Um, also on Twitter, right? I've seen him pop up in conversations here and there. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't do much a Song of Ice and Fire stuff or Game of Thrones stuff. Okay. Uh, he does a lot of other stuff. M- m- a lot of times he just does stuff to, uh, you know, needle me a little bit. <laughs> Good big brother. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but um, I, one day he said that... Uh, you know, he and his wife had a, an HBO account and they had started watching this show, Game of Thrones. And it was toward the end of, actually, I think the first season had already been on. And I, I had never heard of it. I had never heard of the uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. So, yeah, I think it was revving up to the second season of the show. They said mm-hmm. the second season's about to begin, uh, you know here's our account info. Why don't you log in? And Shane said, I think you'll really like, you know, really like the show. Why don't you watch the first season? And, uh, I did. I watched the first season. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, after that, he had the books, the first four, he had the first four books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he let me borrow him, and sometime in the middle of that, he went out and bought uh, a Dance with Dragons. So um, he let me borrow all those. I read them. I really liked them, um, and that, it, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, yeah. And and the fandom itself, then, what was your gateway to that? How did you? Were you researching stuff or looking um, for more history information or? I think, I think maybe, uh, you know, I went on YouTube a couple times to look up clips about the show, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, you know, you, you look at one clip and then of course off to the side, you see any related information. And eventually I got into the related information about the books. Um, and from there, uh, I, I've never really been one that listens to music, uh, very often. So I was like, well, you know, I, I'm really interested in this stuff. Uh, is there something I can listen to while I'm mowing the lawn or washing the dishes? Um, so I just, you know, basically got into my, uh, podcast app, which like I said, is pretty much mostly sports and a, a handful of Star Wars podcasts. And I uh, just typed in, um, I actually typed in a song of ice and fire. I didn't type in Game of Thrones. 
typed in a song of ice and fire and um you know i i got the usual ones on there uh history of westeros radio westeros um and amongst the, i i tried a lot of them out but a lot of them at the time were deeper than i was willing to go with it you know but I found you guys when you were on like your fourth episode, I think, third or fourth episode. Oh wow! Yeah, dang. I think I was around 2011, I believe. 2014. 14 is when okay. we started. Right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Come on, man. Yeah. It's all right. <laughs> try, try to remember. Uh, yeah, it, it was the third or fourth episode, and I remember when I was listening at at that time. Uh, it just sounded like a conversation between three people. And while you did analysis of the chapters, you weren't at that time going as deep as you guys do now. You know, because you guys have gone through the entire books, you've gone through the history books. They said, now you're making connections left and right. You're talking about conspiracy theories, you know, left <laughs> and right. At that time, it was just the two of you and Brooke talking about what you liked and what you didn't like. Sure. And, and that's how I found it. There's something very sweet about that. Thanks for sticking mm -hmm. with us this long, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. I don't have friends that I've met in real life. Well, we have met in real life. We met at Ice and Firecon, but that have stuck with me this long. So yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> so so it, yeah. is A Song of Ice and Fire then, is it kind of your main, your main, I guess, well, I mean, I guess now you've got your own podcast with your own, with, with the Star Wars universe, but is it your main kind of book series? You said you, you're mostly what you do is sports, uh, sports podcasts. What like what makes you, what made you connect with the Song of Ice and Fire and keep you kind of engaged in? Um, I, I enjoy a Song of Ice and Fire. I enjoy Game of Thrones. I won't say that I love them to to the level that most of the people that you know, interact in the Davos Fingers universe likes them. Um, my number one is the Star Wars universe. Uh, but I, I do enjoy both of them. And um, I, I know a lot of the people really like the, what I call the high fantasy aspect of it. You know, a lot of the same people that like A Song of Ice and Fire really like Tolkien. Um I've tried to read Tolkien five different times in my life. I can't get past the first 50 pages. I, I just can't do it. Um, <laughs> and the high fantasy aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire don't really speak to me much. Um, which I know a couple weeks ago, Scott, you and I had a little debate online. It's it's one of the reasons why I have issues sometimes with the brand chapters. I, I just, they don't resonate with me. Mm -hmm. Um the, the parts that really do resonate with me are the things around King's Landing, the, the political, political. Mach machinations. Um, that's the parts that, th those are the parts that uh, really intrigue me. And that's, that's the stuff that I want to know about. That's now again, and that's, and that's why some of the times, you know, I joke that I have, some issues with all the history books that come out because the history books that come out, most of those allude 
to the high fantasy aspects of the story. And it's just something that I don't have much interest in. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of a mix, I feel like, Fire and Blood, you know, specifically at least Fire and Blood. Uh, a lot of it is like very much Targaryen family dynamic, you know, the backstabbing relationship yes. stuff. Yes, I, I like, but, but I like some of those like, aspects. Dragons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a mix. Uh, so, which which book character arc do you like the best? Would you say? Um, I can honestly say that of the POV characters, I don't actually like any of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Once and, you get inside their mind, I know, <laughs> and. and it's okay, dangerous. here's one thing. I, I read the whole, the five books that we currently have very quickly. Um, the way my mind works, uh, I'm very task oriented. So a lot of times when I read something, I read it for the plot. I just want to see what's happening next, you know? Um, so when I read it the first time, uh, I just kind of gobbled it up because I was really interested in what happens next. I went back and read it a second time, and I noticed the second time that I read it, um, I could start to pick out within the chapters where the characters should have realized they were making a mistake. <laughs> and, and when I did that, uh, the affinity that I had for them the first time just sort of dropped a little and dropped a little. I started reading the series a third time and it got even worse. So about three quarters of the way through Game of Thrones, I just stopped. So I've read the whole series twice and I've read the first book, Game of Thrones, uh, about three quarters of it, uh, three times. I, I stopped before Ned got gets beheaded, you know, spoiler alert. But, uh, but uh, it's just, what? yeah, the, the more, the more that I read, the more that I can pick out, you know, I, you should have thought of this before you made this decision. Even someone like me who doesn't get deep into these books can see that that is happening, you know? So, but it's interesting. The, the <laughs> I, don't POV, I, I don't think I've ever heard that real, that perspective before, but the POV character I find the most interesting, uh, you know, I won't say that I like him, but I find the most interesting by far is Tyrion. It's not even close. Not even yeah. close. Yeah, he certainly had uh, <clears throat> had an interesting journey. I don't think we've uh, seen nearly the last of it. Uh, yeah. What sticks with you about him? Because he's such a polarizing character. You mentioned what you know that he's the most interesting to you. What about it? What he's about the him? one that. I mean, he's one of the more introspective ones. Uh, you know, Samwell's introspective, John's introspective, John's introspective to a fault. I, I just get, you know, I get so tired of of that. Just so tired. Shut up, John. Yeah, I know. Come on, man. We got it. Give yourself a break, buddy. Exactly. Um, but there are times where it just seems like Tyrion is this close to 
going against his nature to the point where it could benefit not only him, but the realm as a whole, it, mm-hmm. you know? But there's yeah. always that little bit of Lannister that, you know, you just can't yeah, get past that last yep. bit of your own personal nature that he can't overcome. And it, it there are quite a few times where it seems like he's going to be able to do that, and, and he just doesn't. And he disappoints and, us and, again. Yeah, good. Well said. And that's part of why why it's so so sad. So sad such a lame word to use. So depressing that to to watch him now just slide away from that precipice of, of like you you're you've almost got it, man. Set aside this crappy stuff, elevate this other stuff that you're doing so well. Yeah. Uh, but now he's just sliding away from it. And and, and I won't deny the influence of Peter Dinklage from the show in that. I mean, I that, that, that is a big influence. But of course, a lot of the Tyrion character between the two is not the same, particularly mm-hmm. particularly after he leaves King's Landing. Yeah, you know? later seasons. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's just not the same as the Tyrion in the books. Uh, the Tyrion in the books, of course, is much more despicable uh, than the Tyrion on the show. But... Uh, I still find him the most interesting person, uh, the most interesting character in the story. He's up there for sure for me too. Right. Shall we jump into the third summary? Um. Yeah. Do you have Let's more follow it, up? Man. Nope. All right. Okay. Here we go. Section the third. Cersei's bait to reinstate the faith did not not take long to be scooped up. The High Septon is thrilled to have this offer on the table, adamant that allowing the faith to protect themselves would solve all of these problems. Yeah. Uh, all too easy. Cersei <laughs> thinks. I just imagine Darth Vader shutting the thing, putting Luke in carbonite. Uh, but then she goes in for more. Your Holiness spoke of forgiveness, she said. If Tommen sets aside Magor's laws, will the faith forgive the crown's debt of more than 900,000 gold dragons? You guys, that's almost a million. Whew. The High Septon agrees. Tommen receives his blessing. The crown has its debt forgiven, and the warrior's sons and the poor fellows are reborn. Cersei's lord father could not have done any better. Oh, to be in the room where it happens. Seven save his grace, says the High Septon. Long may he reign. Let the wicked tremble. On the ride back to the keep, Cersei regaled Lady Meriwether with her victory. She explained that the faith militant dated back to before Aegon's conquest. The warrior's sons were an order of knights that gave up all claims to their lands and inheritance, answering directly to the High Septon. They were called swords and wore rainbow cloaks and had star-shaped crystals inlaid in the pommels of their swords. Yeah, and the poor fellows were small folk that carried axes and clubs. Cudgels as well. I just like that word, cudgels. Fisticuffs. Say it as often as I can. Yeah. Uh, they, the poor fellows, protected those that traveled the roads from set to set. They were called stars for the red and white seven-pointed star that they wore on their shirts. Uh, there are many tales of them, Cersei says, but they were implacable in their hatred for enemies of the faith. Enemies like Stannis, 
Circe was counting on it. Her happiness was incurable as the litter made its way across town, or so she thought. Marjorie intercepts them on the way. Oh, joy! She's joined by a whole retinue of ladies, knights, musicians, and Loris of the Kingsguard. They were picking flowers, you guys. This time, at least. This time they were picking flowers. Marjorie, she's a restless girl. They do all sorts of stuff. They go sailing um, on the Blackwater. They they go to visit seamstresses and, you know, pay for dresses and things. They go hawking, praying, of course. She goes out in public to give alms to the poor. She's super busy. And that's all fine, perhaps. But she's been starting to convince Tommen to be busy as well and come along on his sojourns. Oh no, heaven forbid that Tommen become a well-rounded little guy. Uh, Cersei fears uh, that well she's... Well-rounded? Because he's kind of a little, yeah, he's a little chubby boy. Uh, Cersei fears that she's losing Tommen to her influence. And after thinking about it, she realizes that the Tyrells knew they had to remove Joffrey, who was too strong to be coerced, and that they likely snuck Sansa out of King's Landing and are hiding both Sansa and Tyrion at Highgarden. Whew, stretch. The rest is witty barbs as Marjorie tries to convince Cersei to join them on their trips to the woods, as Cersei can't help but cut the girl down whenever possible. Cersei even laughs out loud at one of her own witty thoughts of how she's about to set Marjorie up. Your grace laughs so prettily. Might we share in the jest? Marjorie asks. You will, Cersei replied. I promise you, you will. I need, to, I need to start saying that more. Like if someone's laughing at an inside joke that I'm not privy to. You laugh so prettily. <laughs> Might we saying, share in the jest? <laughs> Might I share in the jest? <laughs> <laughs> I love inside jokes. I've always wanted to be part of one. <laughs> yeah. She says she says to Lady uh Tiana that they are it was right there in the chapter summary there. Uh implacable in their hatred for enemies of the faith. And I think I alluded to it in the last section, but Cer and what, what you said, Aaron, Cersei should be able to see that she might also at some point be considered an enemy of the faith and will have to face that, that enemy that she's now just created. For now, that enemy is Stannis, but she could very easily also be considered an enemy. She's not in control. Yeah, not in control at all. I mean, the deal for wiping out that debt is actually quite well done. Good job, Cersei, yeah. getting that done. I mean, a million gold dragons or whatever just wiped out? Excellent. Good job. But again, Cersei's so focused on the here and now of wiping out that debt that she doesn't stop to consider that there's a rival military force just across town up on the other hill and the high septon is kind of building up his own keep you got the red keep on Aegon's high hill you got the keep of the faith i don't know it's a billy joel song keeping the faith um that was the up on impetus for the that was the impetus for the episode title arm in the oh faith my, oh my gosh beautiful love it He'll, he'll, change, he'll change the name to Baylor's Keep instead of uh, the Sept of Baylor. It'll just become Baylor's Keep. Ooh, Baylor's Keep, yes. Yeah. 
and it's right there in town, man. And yeah. She has no control over them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's somewhat alarming. I mean, 900,000 is a lot. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe she thinks it's worth it. Maybe she thinks she'll be able to disarm them. But it's the High Septon says to rid the realm of evil. And I guess, you know, Cersei doesn't think of herself as evil necessarily, but you have to realize it's not your perspective that he's dealing with. He's got his own perspective. It's yeah. his definition of evil, not yours. So and that's sorry. No, no, go ahead. Interrupted you. Cersei's biggest downfall is refusing to see other perspectives. Yeah. She's so caught up in her own and her own experiences, especially the Valencar prophecy, that she just simply cannot practice any sort of empathy any sort of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and uh that's Honey badger doesn't give a shit trouble. Yep. <laughs> sorry i cut you off because of that oh, prophecy that though you. you were talking earlier about cersei and whether or not she loves her children and i think all of us agree that she doesn't really love her children but she is so consumed with that prophecy that the one thing she needs to do is keep Tommen safe because of the prophecy. You know, I think she's convinced that once the prophecy does happen, yeah. everything's done for her. Absolutely everything's done for her. Yeah. So that's that's now the most important thing in her world is to keep Tommen alive. And what is it? The more systems that you squeeze, the more mm -hmm. they'll slip through your fingers the, the tighter mm -hmm. she tries to keep reins on Tommen, the easier it's going to be for something bad to happen to him especially when what's being promised from the other side is so fun picking flowers learning how the peasants fight with sticks going you know going to have lunch on the seaside going for sailing rides that's that's some some nice it's a carrot horsemanship practice with loris and, yeah you know, all that absolutely. stuff absolutely yeah. There's all sorts of great stuff going on. That's uh, it, it's where she's a lot like Tywin. Is Tywin was so forward thinking about the legacy of House Lannister and making sure that it survives and it continues on. He was so forward thinking in that that he neglected the emotional well-being of his children then and there. And he ends up crippling them in the future emotionally. And this is an instance where Cersei is doing the same thing. We talked about how she's only seeing what's in front of her. She actually is looking ahead for Tommen's future and wanting to protect him. But at the same time, she's squeezing so hard that she's actually damaging him as well. She is so emotionally um, abusive. I'll say it. She's a bully to Tommen. She treats him so poorly all the time. Um that in her efforts to protect him, she's absolutely harming him, doing more harm to him than good. In fact, this stuff with Marjorie, that's great, right? We're, we're led to think this. Um, Tommen's around while she's giving her custom to a dozen different seamstresses. She's well known among the city's goldsmith, been known to visit the fish market to look at the day's catch. The small folk fawned on her. Lady Marjorie did all she could to fan their ardor, <laughs> Cersei says. She was forever giving alms to beggars, buying hot pies off bakers' carts, reining up to speak to common tradesmen. And then I love this line. Had it been up to her, she would have had Tommen doing all those things as well. Evil. <laughs> bad. Bad um, zoot. 
you uh, know, and and one of the things earlier in the chapter that when, when Cersei first gets to the square and the mm-hmm. one-legged man is yelling at her about the fact that the the crown isn't protecting the faith or, you know, even just the, the regular small folk, it, it mm-hmm. it's a mirror image of the same thing. It's that she wants to keep them so separated that they can never know each other. You know, Tommen can never know the small folk because they're insignificant. They don't matter in yeah, Cersei's, you're in a Cersei's lion, mind. Right? Yep. Everyone else is beneath you. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, do you guys think that, uh, let's say, let's say Cersei's disposed of, the the Tyrells become like the powerhouse family. Do you think they would try to remove Tommen or would they let he and Marjorie grow old together and rule the realm together? Kind of knowing that Tommen would hopefully with his soft and happy nature would be a pretty pliable king. What do you think? Do you think he'd be safe? Despite what Cersei thinks? Well, I think the history of this world has already shown it's, it's about primogenitor, correct? Um, I don't know who the Tyrells would put there as king. You know, mm-hmm. Tommen is the one with the king's blood. I don't think they could just remove Tommen, say that Marjorie is the queen, marry her to someone else, and then say Marjorie is the one in control. Will the other houses around the realm follow that? It, it, if we go by the past, mm-hmm. the other houses around the realm will not follow that. You know? <laughs> yeah. We've seen... It's just asking for another rebellion. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it did happen. It did happen 20 years ago or whatever with Robert, and, and it worked because, you know, some people say because he did have a bloodline. Robert says it's because he won it with his hammer. I tend to agree with the second. I mean, he was yep. he was uh, a good candidate for the throne, not because of his temperament or because he ended up being a good king, but just because people liked him and he was strong. I don't think the Tyrells have. A, I don't think they have a Robert. They right. don't have someone super charismatic like that. Sorry, keep going. When, when you when you talk about Robert, I have always believed that you know people talk about. Well, this is the rightful heir to the throne. This is the rightful heir to the throne. My thought always has been the heir to the Iron Throne is the person that can take it and can keep it. (laughs) Yeah. But when you're talking about in this universe, regardless of who can take the throne or keep the throne, the people, at least the great houses of the realm in this universe, believe it is a male that should be the monarch and not a female. So I don't know how the Tyrells could oust Tommen and say that Marjorie is the queen. You know, they can't really just say then Willis is the king just out of nowhere. (laughs) Unless unless Willis is the one that actually would oust Tommen, you know, like in a duel or something. Right. I mean, they could, they could do what Robert did. They could, they could, you know, divorce Marjorie and Tommen and take the throne by force. Yes. And, but, Start but, from scratch, essentially. Right. But but doing it in a way where they're like, oh, yeah, well, they were married and we were playing nice. But then, yeah. you know, he died and we'll just take over. Like, no, there'd be like a whole other who really is the heir. Let's go look at the, you know, the lineages and figure that out. 
if Tommen dies without an heir, that's what would happen, unless they just take it, right? Right. which they could do, probably. Um, I don't know who their candidate would be. Dying yeah, the question would be, would be then but... with Willis and Garland. Uh, you guys know this more better than I do. Garland is already married, correct? Garland yes. is married, yeah. Willis is not. Correct. Right? So could you really put Garland up there because there's no way you could make a marriage pact with other places around the realm to consolidate your power. I guess you could put Willis there and then try to find the best house to marry in with Willis to try to consolidate power around the realm. But well, I, I mean, it would probably be Mace if they took it. Like, right. right. Like they'd probably just put Mace up there. Mace and O'Leary. And then that yeah. puts Willis. As and next then Willis line. is the heir. Right. And that way they've got, a, you know, a run of heirs. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least you know two or three. With yeah, then that would make the Willis Garland. the crown prince, and then and then like I said, then it would probably be easier to find someone to marry Willis off to, and you'd have time to look for candidates. Correct. Yeah, Ariane or any other number of people. Yeah. Actually, Ariane's probably your best bet there. That's that's although now you're talking about the Tyrells and the Martells, you yeah. know. It's with, not exactly. with a marriage pact. That's yeah. <laughs> match made in heaven. Yeah. Yep. Even though that's probably the best candidate. But but we do have we do know that Willis doesn't hold those negative perceptions. Yeah, his little buddy um, Oberyn and your pals. You know, yeah. our pals. It's one but, of our favorite ships is Oberyn and Willis. Yeah, but you are still dealing with you know eons of cultural wars there, so mm-hmm. it's not just the one man that makes a difference. Maybe even maybe the leader. But, yeah, you make good points. I like it. Sansa would be the other candidate, though with yeah. though with the state of the Stark household, how good of a candidate would Sansa be? Yeah. Yeah, the Stark household is interesting because it's it's not... Right now, there, it's dire. in disarray. It's in disarray. It, it's in disarray, but it's not nearly as bad off as it looks. Rickon and Bran are both alive. <laughs> Sansa's well, alive. The... Arya's alive. They're all alive except Rob. <laughs> like as as we see at least from the hill clans too is the, the loyalty is still of the there. Starks is yeah. very is very much still strong, even if the family itself is scattered and ruined and in disarray, like you said. Yeah, in, in universe, still... the great houses think that the Stark house is basically gone, it is off mm-hmm. the earth. Yeah, uh, the sure. the only one that they think is right. still out there right now. What is Sansa? That's the only one they think is still out there. Well, yep. Arya, they have they have Arya, right, Jane. No, he's saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, Bruce, Bruce with, Bruce and Ramsey with Jane. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, good point. <clears throat> oh, I like it. I, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's keep Marjorie married to Tommen, um, hope that they have a son, right? And that son can just be all high tower bait or not high tower. Sorry, Scad, uh, Tyrell, and go for it. Yeah, that, I think that would be the Tyrell's best bet. Yeah, because Tommen, as as young as he is, uh, he would be a candidate be manipulated by, and it, well, I should say influenced and manipulated by uh, the Tyrell clan. It's already happening, right? And and Cersei sees something so wrong in this. How could they do this to her son? When actually, what we see, at least from reading between the lines of Cersei's POV, is this is actually a very good thing for Tommen. It's yeah. helping turn him into a more well-rounded individual. Yes, maybe he will be manipulated for the rest of his life, but he might actually be a good person in the end of it all. 
and break that Lannister chain of just awful dysfunction. And the small folk might grow to like him. And they might like him. And he's such a congenial kid who has the potential to grow into a congenial adult that this could actually be a very good thing for him. But Cersei can't see that because Marjorie is the younger, more beautiful one who's going to kill her. And that's... Yeah, I I mentioned that I just was doing a quiplash before, before coming on here and recording. And uh, one of the phrases that I had to complete was, the Volongar is, and I just wrote, a myth that the future is predetermined. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know this is it's it's dictating actions for like the whole realm yeah just this myth that she believes in like crazy you guys got anything more here no this was actually the section that i had the fewest notes for me too um yeah what else you got aaron nothing i got nothing all three of us speechless oh my heavens yeah it must have been a long week hey guys <laughs> It was for me. I'm exhausted. Kind of was, yeah. It kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just jealous that you got to read all that stuff, Matt. I didn't do all that. All that. Reading. I, I did do some traveling this week, so oh, okay. From Idaho, real quick, and everything. So, all right. Well, shall we? Uh, shall we sign off then? Let us sign off. Yes. Uh, it's customary to allow our guest to sign off first. But first of all, before you do, Aaron, thank you for taking the time to join us. Absolutely. Uh, Very well. It was thanks, exactly, for, thanks for inviting me. It was exactly what I would have expected and probably more insightful, witty, fun, uh, an absolute blast. I'm glad we finally got to do this. So thank you. So, do you want to take us out? Uh, yeah, this is Aaron saying goodbye. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in legends. This is Matt. Uh, echoing the words that I'm sure the High Septon is chanting to himself as he listens to Rage Against the Machine in his office. Amp up and amplify, defy. I'm a brother. I'm a brother with a furious mind. Now action must be taken. We don't need a key. We'll break in. Uh, I will just go with uh, another quiplash moment. Um, the actual cause of the Dance of Dragons. Was the violence inherent in the system? <laughs> Strange women distributing swords. <laughs> it's no model for form of government. Some water taught through a sword at you. Supreme executive power derives from a from mandate, mandate from, from the, the masses, masses, not from some farcical aquatic <laughs> ceremony. ceremony. All right. If I went around saying I was an emperor, <laughs> we got to be done. Okay. <laughs> and Chase and Chase will now notch that one up on his next yes. count. I'm sure mm-hmm. he will. He will. He will. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Moti. Good night. Night. I thought that shtick was hilarious. Mostly because I don't know how Micah how Micah took it, but basically you were just canceling out his vote every day <laughs> and making his. I imagine I would have felt like 
well, this is no fun. I don't even going to make an impact at all, even if I am one vote out of a thousand, you know, or two thousand. Is that how much joy did that give you? Uh, it was fun. Uh, he in it. He he kind of inadvertently dared me to do it. He, he's he kind of came up with it. I uh-huh. I don't remember what he said one day uh, on Twitter, but it had something to do with you know he's a champion of the smaller characters in the saga, mm-hmm. and. I just made a comment about how I really have no idea who you're talking about unless, you know, (laughs) I would be the one talking about the major characters. And he tweeted back that said, that should be your criteria for a song of badness. So I said, all right, that's what I'll do. That was going to be my next question is why Micah? And now we know. He's a great Uh, guy. (laughs) Oh yeah. And you know, He's much more knowledgeable about this than me, but he took it with good humor, I think, in the way it was yeah. intended. And uh, oh, I think he loved. He it. and I both had fun with it. Yeah, it, and I think everyone else did too. Uh, but it, it made me double take a lot of times as to which one of you it was commenting. Uh, my favorite part of it. Avatars were the same. And yeah, my my favorite part of it was for about the first, I want to say, three to four days the number of people that thought Micah was both of, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. was both of the avatars. And it, it yes. like I said, it took about the first three or four days before people realized, Hey, if you look there, that's not his Twitter handle beside uh-huh. it. So yeah, that's how it took, I figured it out. Yeah. Yep. It, it took me a minute. Do we okay. know who the Mark Mullendor uh, Twitter account is? Oh. oh, Oh, is that the reveal? The reveal is right here. It was you. It all was along. you all along. <laughs> you oh guys, I just need to clue everyone in. Yeah. Uh, Aaron it. just held up a big stuffed monkey on the webcam. Ah, big stuffed monkey, <laughs> indicating that Mark Mullendore's monkey, the Twitter account, is <laughs> the man waving to us right now. You heard it here first. A Davos finger exclusive. Aaron Motes has been revealed. Wow. I had no idea. I did a great job. That was fantastic. I'm not even angry. I'm just disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) I was guessing Uh, like uh, Sanrixian because she's the one that drew the original uh design. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think of of you, man. I I thought it could be Yoke Boy also. Or, yeah, I I didn't didn't know either. I figured it was Song of Madness All Star this year. (laughs) A Song of Madness All Star. Aaron Motes. Wow. (sighs) <sighs> one more quick D- uh, soccer question how's dc gonna be this year oh it's gonna be interesting new head coach hernan lasada uh it looks like they're gonna be a high pressing team most of the year um oh. anyone who's a basketball fan uh kind of like the vcu rams yeah. from like 2011 when they made, smart yeah they made that run to the final four their defense was called right. havoc um mm-hmm. Or, you know, the UNLV amoeba defense from the late 80s, early 90s. Um, Running Rebels. Yep. But that's the way this new head coach wants them to play. Uh, Just watching the first game, everyone was completely exhausted at halftime. Just completely exhausted. So, But, hey, they got away with a win. That's all that matters. There you go. All right, let's jump into summary. Oh, like, did you ever get nervous, Motes? There was one time where like Scad and somebody else like 
zoomed in really close on a picture to like try to see the background because there was like a dresser on the background and they were like trying to see like if there were pieces of mail on the dresser or something with your name on it i'll tell you the one time the one time that i thought it was going to be found out and this was this was before that because that was toward the end that, that was that, near that the one end. that scott was, yeah, was one of the last again. ones mm-hmm. it was about midway through and i had had a you know, about, I think I had had two Miller highlights and I was getting ready to go to bed. It was about 10 o'clock, which is late for me. And I was getting ready to go to bed and I was like, oh crap, I forgot to do, you know, day 14 or whatever it is. Uh-huh. And when I sent the tweet, I sent it from my Twitter account. Oh, you did? Yeah. And what? I did. We missed it, that? No, 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 no. I sent it and... Like 60 seconds after I sent it, I was like, oh, crap, that's on mine. So I went and deleted it real quick. I was just I was convinced in those 60 seconds that someone would have seen that it was from the evil Micah Twitter account instead of uh-huh. the Mark Mullendore's monkey Twitter account. But no, no one we didn't see I guess it. no one saw wow. it. I was surprised Micah didn't see it. You know, that, that was eight o'clock prime tuck in time for us. Right. For, yeah. For, for, and for a song of madness. I, I, I don't even. I don't even like browse Twitter, really. It's all just notifications. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, the people that were following it, particularly yeah. particularly the evil Micah account, the people that were right. following that, I, I figured they would have seen it. But no one did. It was up for about 60 seconds before I deleted it and then switched accounts. So, I mean, there someone you go. may have and then just didn't think, didn't think to... Yeah, anyway, or just out of extreme loyalty, they're like, yes, to, to Motsi, they're just like, I'm not going to tell. No, I'm going to hold right. on to this forever. It's like The Office where um, Pam sees Angela and Dwight doing it, and she's just like, I'll never tell. Mm. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I really I, I want to thank all those people who didn't do, you know, who didn't say anything. <laughs> just that of pure loyalty to you. The, the dangers uh, of two Miller highlights before you go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I didn't drink. 